Good evening. Welcome to the weekly Thursday night shear of the Torah of the Alta Rebbe. So tonight, uh, usually my father-in-law does the shear. Tonight I'm taking him over. And um, we're going to learn some Hasidus on this week's Parsha. The mimer that uh, I chose to learn is a mimer on of the Alta Rebbe and Parshas and Torah or the Mimer is uh, based on the Posuk that deals with the Yidin when the Yidin came to um, Matan Torah and the Yidin experienced the giving of the Torah. So the Posuk there says that when Hashem came down on Har Sinai, the Posuk says that Kol Ha'om Royinis Akoilois says that all people heard the sounds. The entire nation, the Jewish nation, heard the sounds. There were koilos, there were sounds. Vesalapidim, and they uh, heard the fireworks, so to speak. Veskol ha-shoifer, and they heard the sound of the shoifer. So, um, the, this pasuk is something that um, the, the Alter Rebbe analyzes. The Alter Rebbe is focused on the questions, as we'll see soon, of um, what's the uniqueness of what's the, the Posuk trying to teach us over here. So just a few words to uh, talk about a little bit, first of all, about Hasidus in general, and then perhaps focus on uh, the Alter Rebbe's direction in Hasidus. So first of all, we know that the Alter Rebbe's style and the Alter Rebbe's approach revolutionized a lot of what we know of in, in terms of the standard way of learning Torah. Till now, the way of learning Torah was focused in Nigla and the revealed aspect of Torah, and only a Yechidi school, only very unique few people were a Zoycha to have the, the elements of the secrets of the Torah revealed to them. And Al Rebbe, starting with the Baal Shem Tev really, but Al Rebbe took the ideas of Hasidus and made it very accessible to everybody something that's comprehensible, something that every single person, when you, when you, when you uh, learn about these things, they're not just these abstract concepts that don't have any relatability, but they're very relatable, relatable and they're something which are supposed to bring us to a new state of consciousness. It's supposed to make us aware to, on a deeper level of who we are, why we're here, what our purpose is. That's the basic idea of what Hasidus is. There's obviously different explanations of what is Hasidus, and uh, precisely the, 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 the mission of Hasidus, but on its fundamental level, it's awakening within us our essence or who we really are and what our mission is and how we accomplish this mission. And through learning Hasidus, the more we learn, the more we become aware of this self, of who we are, and uh, know what our mission is. We're just coming now from Yud Shvat this past week. Um, we were just, uh, the, 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 we were the, where the, the Yudshvat is the day of where the, the famous Mimer Bossi Lagani that the, the Friedrich Rebbe gave us, the previous Chabad Rebbe, taught us the, 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 the 20 chapters of Bossi Lagani. And Bossi Lagani is, is basically the outlining who we are and why we're here. The first 10 chapters are discussing why we're here, what our job is. And then the last 10 roughly are discussing who we are and how we accomplish it and how, why are we the ones that could accomplish it. So that's, that's, the, that's so to speak, the, the essential point of Hasidus. It's to awaken us up and to know, to know who we are, to have a deeper consciousness, a deeper understanding of who we are. 
And through that deeper consciousness, now it makes it much more real to us, our mission and our purpose. So what, what is Hasidus's, what does the Alter Rebbe come along and say, what's our mission, what's our purpose? Our mission, our purpose is to make a dear of We're here to bring God's essence into this world. That sounds like a very uh, lofty idea. We're talking about God and we're talking about his essence and all of these fancy words. How does that play out in a practical sense? What does it mean practically? What, is it, what, are, we, what are we doing? What are we really doing? And we know the idea of dirat achtoinim, this idea of making this world a, a, a dwelling place for God, is, is the world of Mashiach. That's, that's where the completion, the purpose of creation comes to its completeness. And that's when, as, as, as the, in the words of the Rambam, the Shleimus Atayar Vahamitzvah, that's when you have the complete state of fulfilling Torah mitzvahs. Right now, we can't fulfill Torah mitzvahs as, 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 as God, so to speak, designed them to be. They, we, they, some of the mitzvahs don't function at all because, let's say, we don't have a base on Mikdash. And even those that do function, they may be missing certain elements to them. They don't have their full completeness. They don't have their full complete state. When the time is of Mashiach, you're going to have the mitzvahs functioning in their complete state. What is the uniqueness or what is the, 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 the perspective that one should have in the, in the eyes of Hasidus of making a dear of Tachtain, of bringing about this state of existence? is the focus of drawing down God's essence into this world. In other words, it's this idea of us really coming in tune with who we are. And when we realize who we are, which is, as Chassidah says, we're an essence of God, that actually exposes God's essence in this world. That is the consciousness. When we have the consciousness, when we focus our day-to-day -day life, when we focus our energy, to, 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 to do God's will, to be aware of God, and to, to constantly just bring about God's uh, will to fruition into this world, and we get, so to speak, our ego out of the way, we become more in tune with ourselves, and being more in tune with ourselves, we become in tune with God. That itself brings the consciousness, consciousness into this world. That's the basic gist of, of Hasidus throughout the 200 years or so, 250 years or so of Hasidus, the teachings one rev after the next, analyzing, focusing, bringing this idea into a much more realer to each generation where they're holding. And the Rebbe in our generation took this idea and showed us and gave us the power to really do the last final touches of making this world a dear Tachtainim to truly bring out this idea of God's essence into this world. In the Alter Rebbe's generation, Perhaps the Alter Rebbe in the, in the world in the world Alter Rebbe lived in, the Alter Rebbe was spreading these ideas. They were very novel. They were very revolutionary, and not necessarily did most people fully grasp them. As the Alter Rebbe himself writes in his introduction to Tanya, that if you don't understand what I'm telling you, go to the elders of the city and make sure that they tell you what what it means. So that means that there were people that weren't necessarily so capable in fully grasping all the ideas, but. It, 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 once we have, through the Rabbein that came later, and we have an explanation of what the Alter Rebbe's Chassidus is, the way Alter Rebbe gave Chassidus over is like, sort of like, in the beginning stages, was more like, it's more like, you know, liners, one-liners, and you have to figure out what these one-liners are all about. There's hundreds of pages written on one-liners of the Alter Rebbe's Chassidus. But uh, in addition to the one-liners of the Alter Rebbe's Chassidus, you then have these lengthy essays, these lengthy maimorim of the Alter Rebbe's Chassidus, which is focusing on very deep ideas in, in Hasidus, and um, only with the continuation of the Rabbeim do we fully grasp the depth and the full meaning of what they are. The reason why I'm mentioning all this as an introduction is because the Mimer that we're going to learn 
there's a, there's a lot of avenues that the Alter Rebbe takes us. He takes us down many different avenues, many different paths. And sometimes to bring it all together and to see the ultimate picture is sometimes a little bit confusing. We don't necessarily catch to see where, what's going to be the, what's the underlying chord, so to speak. There's the melody, there's the words, but what's the underlying chord of the Alter Rebbe's message to us? And how is it relevant? I think this is an issue a lot of times you learn Hasidus. How is the Hasidus I'm learning practical? How is it relevant to our, today, our day and in general? In our mission, as we said before, to make it the Eretz so what we're going to try is to learn the Mimer with such a perspective of seeing, so to speak, its practicality, obviously understand the ideas, but to see its practicality in, 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 a real, in a real way. So just maybe first we'll give a little synopsis of what this Mimer is about, just to discuss what we're talking about. We started off mentioning the Pasuk, and we'll talk a little bit uh, about it more once we learn inside, just maybe just some, discuss some of the details. Uh, some of the general points. So this mimer, as I said, as we said, is talking about the mimer that Rebbe, the Alter Rebbe focuses on when the, we know this week's parsha, the Eden come to Har Sinai, and uh, they're experiencing the revelation of God. It says that God Himself came down on Har Sinai, tremendous revelation. Beforehand, the Jews experienced godliness. It says that the Jews, when they crossed the the the, the Yamsuf. It says that Rosh Shifcha Bayam, that the Shifcha, the maidservant of the Jews, saw more godliness than Yecheskel Ben Buzi, the famous prophet Yecheskel, which we're going to touch upon some of his prophecies. He saw greatness, as we'll talk about. Even he didn't compare to what the Shifcha, Alayam, saw. But yet, that didn't compare to what the Jews experienced when they heard God's voice, when they saw God Himself ascend on Har Sinai. So, this was the most unbelievable moment which the Alter Rebbe actually points to in Tanya, in chapter 36, when he speaks about the idea of what our mission in this world is, and he says that our mission is dear Tachtainim, he, he throws us back to the to Martin Torah, to Har Sinai, to the experience we had in Martin Torah. He says that was a me'ain, that was a little bit, so to speak, of the experience that we're trying to not just duplicate and recreate, but actually bring it in its full permanence. In its full permanent way, that's what we're trying to do. But I think the reason why Dr. Rebbe tells us this idea there in chapter 36 is precisely for us to realize that, so to speak, in our deep consciousness, in our historical consciousness, we already experienced something of this experience. And that is when God came down on Har Sinai, there was an experience of God in this world. We know the famous Medrash that in Bossi Lagani we mentioned before, that God says, Bossi, I come Lagani to my garden, meaning I'm returning to my garden, to my garden that I was here before. That means God's essence, Ikashchina, was here in this world. But Matantara, that's what it means. It means I'm Matantara. At that stage, God's real essence, his, his ultimate essence was here in this world. And now we're trying to bring it back, but not just bring it back, bring it back with a permanence and with a, a eternity and with a, a much more real, in, the, in its truest essence form. How do you differentiate between the essence, the way it was at Matan Tur, the way it's going to be when Mashiach? That's an interesting discussion. But the idea is, is that the Alter Rebbe there says that that's the experience that the Jews had on Har Sinai till the extent that they passed out. It says in the Pasuk that the Jews expired. And uh, only through Tal Torah, through the high revelations of Torah, were they able to, the do of Torah, which do is going to be what the Gemara says, that the do of Torah, the Tal Torah is going to revive the dead. When Mashiach comes, it's also revived the Jews then. So we see that Matan Torah was this tremendous revelation of the essence of God. But the Pasuk describes it, in, so to speak, in, in physical description. And it uses some sort of fantastical description. It says that the Jews heard, they saw, I mean, they saw the sounds 
Chazal tell us that they saw what's, what usually is heard, and they heard that which is seen. So first of all, the obvious question is, what's, what's, why, what was the purpose of that? Or, or more importantly, what exactly does that communicate to us, right? That they saw the sounds. And what does that mean? How do we understand that? And, and what relevance? We know everything the Torah says. This is another point in Hasidus. Hasidus doesn't just come to tell us a story that, ha the Torah doesn't just come to tell us a story that happened two, three thousand years ago. Every aspect in Judaism is a continuum. It's a process that's going on now. We're right now, this week's Parsha, Parsha's Yishlai, when we're gonna hear the Aserah Sadibris again, we're actually gonna experience, re-experience subconsciously, consciously, depending how in tune we are with the Matan Torah. Every time we learn Torah, the Gemara says, when every time you learn Torah, you have to feel the same experience you had at Har Sinai. Because in truth, as the Rebbe explains, the truth is when you're learning Torah, that very moment, you're actually receiving it the same anew from God. So that means Judaism doesn't believe in a historical past. It sees the historical past as a continuum going on till today. It's something happening in the here and now. It's, a, it's, a, it's an ongoing process. So what is the relevance? That's where Chassidus makes it this. That's how Chassidus brings it to us. Because Chassidus, if you're talking about a, histor a historical past, you could talk about it in the context of a history of what happened and how it happened. Doesn't have much of a relationship to you. But Chassidus sees it as something happening to me now and something I have to see and learn and learn from this experience in my Avodah Hashem and how it's how that I bring about the same experience, so to speak, duplicate it or, 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 or recreate it in doing my Avoida now. So what's the Roy Mesakaila's significance? And then it says Vesalapidim, they saw these like fiery flames. They saw these, these explosions. What, what, what does that signify? And then it says Vesqaila Shoifer, they heard the sound of the Shoifer. These are all the descriptions that the Pasuk over there describes of the experience that the Jews had at Mahar Sinai. So the Alter Rebbe begins off the Mimer by asking a few series of questions. First of all, he wants to know what's the significance of the sound of the shofar. The Alter Rebbe is going to ask, what, well, they didn't have any better musical instruments? If you want to make a nice, uh, you know, let's say today, in today's day and age, you, you're going to make a big event, right? So you usually have a concert before the event. You get, they're going to get the highlight. There's going to be some big speakers going to come. So you get a nice orchestra, or maybe a symphony, whatever. You bring together some beautiful musical instruments to make it a whole nice event. People come, are awe-inspired, and are, feel amazed by this whole event. And then the, the, you build the person up till now you, he, the, the main speaker is going to come and blast the people away with his brilliance or whatever he's trying to communicate. Kol Shaifer, it's a simple sound. It has no musical value to it. Doesn't, doesn't produce anything musically to a person. So what, how, how significant could that be, says the Alter Rebbe? And the Al-Tarebbe deals with more questions we'll deal with, we'll see later. And the Al-Tarebbe then goes on to explain the, a much bigger question. He deals with a much bigger question. He says, what really is the uniqueness of Matan Torah? Matan Torah is the time that we make a big deal out of it, right? Shuvah is when we celebrate Matan Torah, giving it a Torah, the first time in history that God communicated to man directly through a Torah and told us this is, he told us this is what he wants us to do in life. So you ask a simple question. We know Chazal teaches us that Avram Avinu already did the Torah. Avraham Avinu kept the Torah. It says he even kept the mitzvahs de Rabbonah. He kept even the, 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 the nuanced details that we do today that we think only started, you know, maybe two, three, four hundred years ago. It says Avraham Avinu kept those also. He was aware of them and kept them. So if Avraham Avinu already had the Torah going back two, three, four, five hundred years ago, what's the significance of Matan Torah? Why do we make a big deal of Matan Torah? And if we say there's a big deal, why wasn't Avraham Avinu given the Torah? Meaning, seemingly, he's the first Jew. He started this whole thing off. Well, why didn't he have the actual Torah? 
And seemingly the significance of modern Torah is that it brought about something in the physical world. Because till then there was no physical mitzvah, there was no physical command, there was nothing to take, you know, didn't say take a matzah and eat it on Pesach, shake a lulav on, on, on sukkahs. But what's the significance of that? So th this is the bigger question that the Alter Rebbe addresses here. And what Alter Rebbe moves on to start explaining is the significance between the avoid of Avram Avinu we focus on Avram Avinu's Avoida, the, 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 the focus of the Avoida that Avram Avinu tried to accomplish, which is this idea of Ratzi Vishuv, which we'll talk about, and how that idea of Ratzi Vishuv was something which, in his, in, for Avram Avinu, was, he was capable of sustaining a type of Avoida of Ratzi Vishuv. The great Malachim, the great angels, the great high, low, high lofty souls could deal with such an Avoida. The Jewish people, as, a, as in the majority, couldn't, whereas are not capable of doing a Rotsi Vishuv type of Avoida like Avram Avinu. Matan Torah enabled us to be able to do a similar Rotsi Vishuv process like Avram Avinu, which brings about a certain duality in terms of our Avoida, two opposite forces. We'll talk about what these two opposite forces are that enables there to be a much deeper connection to God and yet bringing down more of God into this world. And through that, you have what we're going to eventually, what we spoke about before, the Deir of Tachtain, and this place being a dwelling place for God. And that, in a way, is, surpasses Avram Avinu's Ratzi Vishuv, especially because we deal with the physical world, as we'll see the significance of why dealing with the physical world is important. And, and the highlight of this is the Koilis and the Lapidim, because the Koilis represent one form, Ratzoi, uh, uh, versus uh, Lapidim refers to Ratzoi, the idea of, of koil, which is sound, which is water. We'll see the significance of water and sound, the difference between Lapidim, which is fire, and the idea of ear, fire and ear, their significance. These are things which represent these two different types of forms of serving God and how they really come together. And they come together through the kol shoifer, the sound of the shoifer that points the sound of simplicity which in simplicity you have essence, as we'll see what that means, that draws together these two opposite forms of Avoida, and through that we accomplish this great ultimate mission that we're here set out to do in this world. That's in a nutshell what the Alter Rebbe is going to try to teach us and try to give us that direction for us today in, ter service, in terms of our service of God. What are we doing here? What are we trying to accomplish? What does it mean Torah? What does it mean we're learning Torah, fulfilling the mitzvahs? What are we, what are we doing? Now there's one more point before we get into the actual mimer itself, one point to, I think to, to focus on. In the world of Hasidus, especially in the world of the Alter Rebbe's Hasidus, the Alter Rebbe, if you learn the Maimorim, those who've been following the Shirim over the past 18 years have probably gone through almost all the Alter Rebbe's Maimorim, at least in Torah and Kutay Torah, the, 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 you see that there's a constant discussion about what's the focus of Torah mitzvahs, how do they function, what's their purpose. What are they trying to accomplish? And within different Maimorim, you have sort of different types of um, nuanced differences. Like, what, what, what are we getting through? What are we accomplishing with, these, with Torah mitzvahs? So in this Maimor, the Rebbe deals with, the Rebbe deals with a specific way of looking at Torah mitzvahs. It doesn't mean that the other ways aren't true. It means that there's, there's again, depending on the viewpoint, depending on the angle you're looking at, in Hasidus, there's, there's the expression, is it always depends on where you're talking. Depending on the location, like for example, you know, you know, they have the, the famous uh, the, the discussion of the nine, the nine blind, men, blind men holding the, the elephant. So what's an elephant, right? So the Altareva wasn't blind, in godliness. He knew every aspect of it. But for us, he's giving us different viewpoints to understand the, some different aspects in Avoida. We have to bring them all together once we have all of them together. 
But just to highlight one important point, talking about the Torah, which we'll see more about, we have to also realize that the Torah has this, 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 this wide spectrum. Torah represents the essence of God, but then Torah also travels down to, into the real world, into the physical world. So this, whole, this, this, this wide spectrum of Torah being God's essence, but yet dealing with the physical world, this, 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 this concept is something that the Torah is going to try to explain in this mimer. How do we have Torah being yet the essence of God, but yet it descends into the physical world? And, and, and what does that mean? What does that mean that there is an essence through, of God through, into the physical world? This is a major point that Al-Turba highlights in Hasidus, this idea of the physical and how in the physical you have the, more of the essence. A lot of it is not discussed here. It's discussed in other places, but it's an important idea, I think, that we could focus on when we learn the Mimer inside. So let's, let's go, let's start inside. We'll try to discuss uh, the, the major points and uh, see, you know, how the, how the Rebbe discusses it. So the Mimer begins, Again, the Pasuk says that the entire nation saw the sounds, they saw the fiery flames, and they heard the sound of the shofar, or they saw the sound of the shofar. So the Atreba asks, So again, what's the significance of the sound of the shofar on This most momentous moment in Jewish history, sound of the shofar. So we understand Rosh Hashanah, there's a concept of shofar. Chassidus talks all the time about the shofar and Rosh Hashanah. One of the major theme of the shofar on Rosh Hashanah is connected to the idea of the shofar on Matan Torah. What is that connection? And as he asks the obvious question, do they need a, a physical, in, a, a musical instrument? Is that the purpose of the shofar? So first of all, was the purpose instrumental? Was the purpose musical? If that's the case, get a better music. Get a get a violin. Get a get get something better over there, right? So so the concept is as follows. The sound of the shofar is a simple sound. There's many groups or you have different, uh, sometimes you have this, uh, you know, people who want to focus on their inner self. So they call it the kol shofar, kol ha-shofar. Because that represents a certain purity, a certain essence, right? Why is the shofar sound the sound of a child cry? Because there's nothing more pure than the child's cry. You know, you hear a child cry. I have a little infant at home. You know, you, 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 it's, sometimes it's hard in the middle of the night, but it's, 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 it's a purity of a sound. There's nothing, there's nothing, there's no complexity of, 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 of the sound. It's pure, it's, it's coming from a pure child. The child has nothing in his life or her life at this point that could, you know, once you get older, so there's an intellectual cry, there's an emotional cry, there's different forms of crying. Okay, people today, scientists know that, or doctors will tell you that when the baby cries, it makes this sound, it's because there's a pain, or because they want the diaper change, or they were hungry. You could identify different sounds, perhaps, but the purity of the sound of the shofar represents the purity of like a child, that there's, 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 no, there's no details in it. It's just a pure thing for itself. And what does it accomplish? Umatil Eima places a certain fear, shukol charada, which is a sound of trepidation. Kumay Shakosov, as the Fosuk says, says the Navi tells us that if you blow a sound of the shofar in the city, wouldn't that stir and awaken the nation around you? In other words, the sound of the shofar has this impact on the person. It, 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 it stirs the person to a certain place that's deeper. You know, a lot of times in today's day, especially in today's generation, we don't get impact by things. Things happen, okay, what else happened? You know, everything is available. All news is available. So you hear, 
you know, that 7,000 people died in a country, okay, big deal, you know, today with the virus in China, unfortunately, there's, there's great numbers of people suffering from a tremendous, you know, a disease, an epidemic, an endemic, whatever it is, and it's, 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 it's mind-boggling to us. But then we don't even think about the times that in the news we hear that three people were, were killed in this place, and it becomes, we come numb to it, become, it doesn't affect us. So we have sounds that just happen, that we hear, there's things that happen that don't affect us on any level. But a cold shoifer, a cold shoifer automatically penetrates. The sound of the shoifer, which we'll see again, the deeper meaning of the sound of the shoifer, penetrates on a much deeper level. Therefore, Amat and Torah, likewise, it says, it says Amat and Torah, there were the sounds and the brokim are literally the, the crashes of the, the thunder. The coil shoifer chosak ma'oid, and the sound of the shoifer was extremely powerful, vayecharad, and the nation feared. So here again, the Altareb is proving this idea that the shoifer instills or brings out, pushes the button, so to speak, of fear. Fear doesn't necessarily mean, you know, anxiety and, and, and panic attack fear. Fear over here means a certain deep awareness of something. It connects you to something more real. It, it creates, as you, maybe you could say, it, it gives you pause, it makes you focus, it makes you. It makes you um, hypersensitive at this moment, hyperfocused. Despite all this, so we're saying the shoifer on the one hand, we're now describing the shoifer as a simple tool. It's a tool to penetrate deeper, but it's a simple sound. You don't have much pleasure when you sound the shoifer. It doesn't make you I've never heard the shoifer and felt like, wow, that's such a beautiful sound. It doesn't stimulate it. If I heard a nice violin, I right away, I gravitate towards that. The sound of the violin, could stir me musically. It stirs something emotionally in me. The shofar doesn't do any, doesn't, I don't have pleasure. I'm not going to sit on a, hearing a shofar playing in my ears for a few hours, but I could hear a symphony play for a few hours in my ear. But then the Rebbe Alter Rebbe says, Ach in despite this, Nikra shofar, the shofar itself, the word, we know every word in Hebrew represents an idea. The words are not just, you know, conventional words. They're not words that we agreed upon to decide. The words are directly from God. God shows the language or created the language of holy of Lashna Kaidish, and therefore the words represent an idea. It says Hashem Shipru Maasechem or Shapru Maasechem, the idea of Shapru to better your ways. What's the significance of Shapru Maasechem? How does what does that represent? So simply it means that the shofar stirs within a person a need to change, a need to grow, right? That's shapru ma'asechem. However, there's, here the idea represents this idea that it actually creates a certain shapir, a certain beauty, a certain nice, nicety, a certain feeling of, of pleasure that comes through it. So here we're saying that the shofar on the one hand is simple, but on the other hand we're saying there's a concept of shapru ma'asechem, which seems to be a concept of some sort of beauty. Which issue Hamam Shikhtainuk, Shibaiva Yodi, Nimshikolamatalis is Havas Tainuk. What does the Shafer do? It actually elicits, it draws down pleasure. It itself is not pleasurable, but somehow it itself brings down pleasure. Through the shofar, through the, 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 the awakening of the shofar, through the stimulation of the shofar, it actually generates the level of tainug, that through it it could come down, Lias says Havus Tainuk, that it could be a formation of Tainuk. Because the shofar, the sound of the shofar is actually the source of pleasure. So this sounds very strange to understand. What does it mean it's a source of pleasure? We just said it's a simple sound. How does that stimulate pleasure? So obviously the Altarev is going to discuss this later in the Mimer to understand what that means. But on a very basic note, just to focus on something, we have to appreciate what 
He's, he calls it the mokar hatainuk, the source of pleasure. We have to understand what is a source of pleasure. What is pleasure? Pleasure is the deepest, innermost element of our consciousness or subconscious, that something that we relate to. 90% or 95% of what we do, if not 100% of what we do, is stimulated somewhere by tainuk, by pleasure. We may not say that. If I ask if someone is eating, let's say, a, 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 a piece of cake, and I say, why are you eating the cake? The first, they'll, be, they'll try to rationalize while they eat the cake. Hungry, it tastes good, this or that, a whole bunch of explanations. The real reason is because you have pleasure, simple. That's it. There's a pleasure in it. Pleasure drives us. When it says when God created the world, God had a, had a moment of pleasure. He saw a Jew putting on tefillin, he got excited, he had that moment of pleasure, that's what made him want to create the world. That's the way it works. We get excited, there's a desire, a pleasure to something that feels good, and therefore we want it to, to happen. That's why the difference between pleasure versus the opposite, oinig is, is the same letters as, as, as nega, which means pain. We, we're, we're, we, we, don't, we want to avoid pain, we want to stick with the level of pleasure, and that stimulates us, that keeps us going. So tainig is the deepest point in a person that we, so to speak, can relate to. Beyond that is the essence itself. When we want to stimulate a pleasure, if it's a real pleasure, not an external pleasure, right, like eating a piece of cake or, or enjoying a piece of, music, a piece of music, music or something like that, a real deep, pleasure, it means there has to be a trigger on a very, very deep essential level to, in order to stimulate this idea. And that's precisely what the Kol Shoifer does. The Kol Shoifer is that trigger to the essence itself that could draw forth true pleasure. You could get pleasure in anything today. You know, people are on drugs, they officially have pleasure. But at a certain point, the pleasure, it changes from pleasure to, to danger, right? So there is an idea of pleasure, for sure. There's a concept of pleasure. But, uh, and it, but, but again, the, the, the source that we're talking about is Mokmat Tanugim. Now, when did this happen? says the Rebbe, this bringing down, it had to happen in Matan Torah. In other words, Matan Torah not only was the time it happened, but it's the time that made it happen. It had to happen in Matan Torah. As I'll explain, the Pasuk says about, about the source of life. God is the source of life. So the Pasuk describes it, because imcha, with you, is makar, is the source of chayim. Life is the ultimate pleasure, right? We, there's no greater pleasure than to live. If a person is, 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 has the options of, of having the most luxurious life, but being ill, or not being able to, 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 to God forbid, talk and communicate, or, or walk, or do anything, that they're willing to give up all the pleasures, the, the external pleasures, the other pleasures in the world, for this essential pleasure, which is life. So Mokar Chaim, the source of life, i.e. the source of real pleasure, this source of real pleasure is Imcha, is with God himself. What does it mean it's with God? That means it's an essence. A source of real pleasure stimulates, comes from the essence itself. The essence itself is where the source is. So this is the idea of the chauffeur. The idea of the chauffeur represents this idea of drawing down an essence or awakening an essence, which through there you have pleasure. Okay. So now we, these are the questions. We, we dealt with the questions. Now let's move into the body, so to speak, of the, of the mimer. So says the Rebbe, be your Indian to understand this concept. So again, we have to understand this whole concept of Matantara. We said Matantara is this great revelation. God himself is coming down on Har Sinai. God himself is revealing himself to us. He's communicating his, his will. He's telling us what he thinks or what he wants us to do in this world, how we connect to him, how we fulfill our purpose why he created us, why he created the whole world. That's what happens at Matan Torah. Matan Torah is that moment. But the question is, what's the significance of that moment in history? If you're saying it's because God needed people to fulfill his mission, 
meaning tzaddikim. A tzaddik is someone who fulfills God's will, uh, right? So there was tzaddikim before Matan Torah. The nation that came out of Mitzrayim weren't as great tzaddikim as Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, and not as great as the Shvatim, right, seemingly. And if you say you needed someone who was great as a prophet to communicate God's, God's will, you had prophets. Again, you had Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. So if you're dealing with a necessity of a group of people to communicate and to have them fulfill this mission, you already had that before monetary. It wasn't as if at the moment of the Jews who left Mitzrayim, now God had his people, he had the capabilities, as seemingly at least, we'll see obviously not that way soon. But, but seemingly God had the people that he needed. He had his tzaddikim, he had the people who fulfilled it, and he had his neviim, he had his prophets that could, could communicate it. So what's the great significance of Matan Torah? And he gives examples. All of these people were great tzaddikim and prophets in their own right. Top of the next column. Avram Avinu fulfilled the entire Torah even before it was given. The Gemara teaches us on the post. God says that he guarded my guard. He guarded my laws. That he could kept the whole Torah. So if Avram Avinu already kept kol Torah kula, Right? So then again, not only, not only did God have the people in place, but he had people doing it already. Avraham Avinu was fulfilling the Torah. So then again, what's the significance? So, Rak, Shehoi Yezeb the, the, the form of Torah mitzvahs that took place by Avraham Avinu was a spiritual form. It was, didn't have its physical counterpart. This idea is basically the fact that the physical world wasn't ready, wasn't able, as we'll see later, to be able to be transformed. That's the basic point. But seemingly, at this point, we don't know yet why that's necessary. Why is the physical world necessary? In fact, if you look at other, even in Judaism, if you look at other, um, other uh, so to speak, explanations for what we're here for and how we're supposed to accomplish our mission, without Hasidus, it seems like actually the idea of ruchni, spirituality, is the ultimate purpose. Get in tune with your neshama, get in tune with your soul, communicate to your inner self, and therefore, so to speak, remove yourself from the physical world, right? That's, so to speak, the traditional way of looking at our purpose here. You may even see some of that mentioned even today, obviously from non-Hasidic, or at least not Lubavitch Hasidic uh, teachings. The focus is, so to speak, remove yourself from the world and deal primarily with the spiritual world, right? So the Altreb, in a way, is addressing this issue right here. He says, if that's the case, then Avraham Avinu already accomplished. It was already doing all that. So technically, for the spiritual world of Torah, mitzvahs, that already happened by Avraham Avinu. So then what's the great significance of, the, of this great Matan Torah that's happening now, or happening at the time that the Jews left Mitzrayim? What's the significance there? And as he says, What change happened that now the Torah was brought down on a physical plane? What did that accomplish? Right? And again, you could ask the question on a little bit of a different way, of at the end of the day, is the spiritual more important or the physical more important? And seemingly, perhaps, when we think of Judaism or religion, what, what does it come to mind right away? We connect it somehow with spirituality. That's the way we relate to it, right? Judaism, any other ism, right? Always correlates, any, any concept of religion somehow connects to a concept of spirituality. But that's, that's the focus that Hasidus makes us, that's the consciousness Hasidus wants us to change. Judaism is not spirituality. Judaism is godly. And godly is not defined by spirituality. Not that spirituality isn't God, and not that spirituality isn't part of Judaism, but that's not the focus of Judaism. Here the Altarab is highlighting that point in the question. If Judaism is the spiritual world, if spirituality is the focus, then what's the significance of Matan Torah then? And how does the physical world play a role in this whole thing? 
So then he continues. So now we have to understand the significance of Avram Avinu. What was the avoid of Avram Avinu? It says in the Pasuk that the Torah describes Avram Avinu as traveling southwards. If a person is facing east, <clears throat> so south represents the right side, right? South is the right, and, and uh, uh, north is the, is, is the left. And he's, because he's facing, let's say they're facing east. So it says that he traveled, he was traveling in the south. So the physical description of the story was is that when he had to go, because there was a famine in Egypt, he had to go down, uh, there was a famine in Israel, he had to go to Egypt, he had to travel south. But Hasidus highlights this Pesach and sees within this Pesach, obviously, as we said before, everything in Torah represents a current, a now, a continuum of what's happening now. It's not just a story that took place. There's a, there's a relevance in Avoida. What's the relevance of this? So he says, says the Alter Rebbe, that what was the significance? Shinasa v'chinas markova v'chinas negba. Avram Avinu was striving to reach his completion for what he was here for, and his completion was becoming a markava, a chariot to Negba. Negba is the south, seemingly, simply. What does the south represent? So we said the south represents the right side. What's the right side? Chesed. We know within the body, so to speak, of the spiritual anatomy, the right represents Chesed. Chesed represents this level of love, this level of expansion, this level of overwhelming feeling of closeness. That's what Chesed represents, this deep level of closeness. Chesed, love, the reason why Chesed and love are connected because they both represent this idea of deep closeness to something. You show a lot of love because you feel close. You show a lot of kindness because you feel close. Closeness is the right side. Avram Avinu knew that his, his, he embodied this element of Chesed, this concept of closeness, and he wanted to strive to reach the ultimate state of that. That's Negba. So in order for him to accomplish that, he traveled. Traveling here means he was reaching, trying to reach the ultimate level to perfect his level of being the perfect conduit of Markova, the perfect conduit for this, this, this chesed, this closeness of God. And here's the crucial words. Until he reached this perfection of being the ultimate chariot, the ultimate vessel, he was constantly coming and going. He was constantly traveling. What does this represent? This represents the status, this form of avoid of Ratzi Vishuv. So let's talk for a moment. Again, basic ideas of Ratzi Vishuv. What is Ratzi Vishuv? Ratzi Vishuv is one of the fundamental concepts that's mentioned a lot in Hasidus. It's a Pasuk in Yecheskel. We mentioned before the prophet Yecheskel describes in his very beginning, in the very first chapter of his prophecy, whether it's the actual beginning of the book or it was, or was formulated here in the beginning of the book, but it describes his, his famous vision that he saw of the angels up high. A lot of ideas that Hasidus formulate in, in the ideas of the expression of the Jewish soul, the way the soul, so to speak, feels connections to God and so on and so forth, is represented by the angels above and the way the angels serve as God. As we'll see later, that's why we say these, we describe, so to speak, the angels' form of service right before we say Shema. If you ever paid attention to before we say Shema, in the morning we have two brachot. The two brachot represents a form of describing the angels. The first one primarily is focusing the form of the way the angels serve God. Why are we busy with how the angels serve God? We're souls. In fact, souls are greater than angels. Because this embodies, this shows us, so to speak, the forms of avoidance. It has the purity of how to serve God in its purest sense. And that, so to speak, it gives us an, a meaning and a feeling of how our service should be. So Yecheskel, the prophet Yecheskel describes the angels. It says that the angels, the highest, they're called the highest, the very high form level of angels. It says that they were they were running around, they were coming back and forth. They seem to be 
totally overwhelmed by something. So Hasidus, he highlights this idea as Ratzei Vishuv being an Avaida. What does it mean, Ratzei Vishuv? So Rashi there in the Pasuk describes, he says, it's like let's say you have a fire. Sometimes you turn on a fire and for a moment there's like a gust. The fire like sparks out and then calms back down, quiets back down, right? Sometimes you have that boom, that gust, and then it comes back down. What's what happens? So in Hasidus, there's an idea of feeling a certain, a tremendous overwhelming feeling of being drawn to something, right? You feel drawn to an idea, you feel drawn to a person, you feel drawn to something deeper, something more, something higher. A fire feels drawn to its higher source. That's why the fire always fire, goes upwards. It's always feeling close to its upper source. So there's moments of, of, of elation, of excitement, of feeling so close or feeling so overwhelmed that it just wants to completely be connected to its source. That is where the angels, they experience a certain level of comprehension of godliness that they feel so, they want to be so much part of this connection of godliness. They, 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 they want to feel so part of it that they just go out, they want to go out of themselves. They don't want to be limited. It's let's say for example, you know, um, uh, you know, let's say a personal, just an interesting experience that I remember when Rabbi, when Rabbi Rashkin was freed a number of years ago from prison. So when I heard the, no, the news, I mean, you saw videos of people throughout the world, but everybody had this feeling of just wanting to get up and dance and go somewhere, right? You just wanted to be part of a crowd of people dancing and cheering this tremendous, this tremendous excitement and the miracle. Something overwhelms you, something that takes you to a higher place, right? That's, that's usually what, 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 this, uh, what, what it does. So that's, that's an experience of tremendous feeling of connection to something, a certain elation, a certain feeling of, that's a rotsui. Deeper yet, there's, uh, there's moments in time where we experience a certain feeling to God, which is like so overwhelming that we just, it just takes us, it drives us, it pushes us, it makes us want to feel so connected, right? That's a rotsui experience. But like the angels, the angels, once they get so close, Sometimes when you get close to something, you realize that you don't belong here. That you're not that, you're not, you're not, it's exciting when you're further away because you're so far. But once you get too close, you realize, you realize this is not your place. Like the fire, when the fire first expands, it goes crazy, it realizes that it doesn't have enough gas, enough energy to survive if it's just going to shoot out like that. In order for it to survive as a fire, it has to stay, so to speak, within its realm. And that's what happens with the angels. The angels feel this tremendous surge of wanting to connect to God. But once they experience a little bit, it's described also of like peeking out of the hole of the cave, right? You know, it's like seeing an awesome, overwhelming, let's say, volcano explode. So you want to see it. You want to be part of it. And then you peek your head out and you move closer and it's too hot. You know, realize you shouldn't be here. Otherwise, you won't survive. Or let's say maybe another example of this idea in a different, more social type of setting. Let's say you have this, uh, you know, you, you're, you're, you have this uh, great idea and you want to share your idea with, I don't know, your, your boss, your, let's say there's this big CEO of a company you're working for, you want to share your idea with the boss. So you get all excited with your idea and you're going to run to his office. As soon as you're about to enter the office, you're like, whoa, 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 one second, you know. This guy has been dealing with ideas and concepts for years or whatever, me, my little self, I don't belong here, you know, I don't want to be shown to be a stupid person or whatever, I don't want to be turned, turned, brought into shame. It's a little bit of a different angle, but it's a similar process of Ratzi Vishuv. But what is, so that's, that's, that's what happens. There's a tremendous surge, and then, it, then there's a realization, so to speak, of where you belong. We'll see a little bit later, what is, how does that play out in terms of real Avedis Hashem. Hasidus takes this idea of Ratzi Vishuv and says, that what are the angels experiencing? What, 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 what's the reason of Ratzi Vishuv? So let's say like a, like a heartbeat. When you, want to have heart, when you want to have blood go around your body, 
So you need to have your, the pulse. You need to have the blood pulsating through the body. In order for it to circulate properly, you need to have the blood go around it properly. How does that happen? <clears throat> that happens through the heart pumping. As the heart pumps, so each pump makes the blood circulate, right? And as long as the blood is being pumped, the heart is pumping well, the body functions well, everything is good. God forbid not, then there's problems. Now, the moment, the feeling of the pump, what is it? It's, an, it's, it's a boom and then a stop, right? The heart doesn't just keep on going boom. If it keeps on going boom, there's something majorly wrong, right? It's a, a thrust and it goes back, right? You feel your pulse. You constantly, you know, how do you know what your pulse is? You constantly feel the, the pressure every so what of every few seconds, right? Or a second, depending on your, your blood, your, your pulse rate. You'll feel something constantly going in and out. That in the physical sense, is the, is the, is, describes this concept of Ratsi Vishuv. That in the physical sense represents this idea of Ratsi Vishuv, this idea of a moment of, of force, of energy, of, of excitement, so to speak, pushing forth, but then the need to retract, because too much of that means you don't survive. But what's the ultimate purpose? The ultimate purpose is to get to a higher level. That's the point that the Altareb is making here. In order to achieve a higher level, an ultimate level of being connected the way you go about this process is through a Ratzi Vishuv process, which in other words means as follows. It means that as you constantly are climbing, right? So you, 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 know, you, you initially go so far and you realize you're not there yet, so you go back. And then so, so but you already, you already went that far the first time. You already went out, so you already experienced somewhat of that experience. So now the next time you go out, you go out a little further. In Hasidah, sometimes it gives the example of like, like swimming. In order, if you want to get from point A to point B, so you constantly, first you have to draw your hands out. So that's like the Rotsi point, you're going forward. But in order to move forward, you have to push your hands back behind you. And that propels you forward. Likewise here, in order to be able to go reach higher levels, you need to be able to take the moment of excitement and then be able to retreat back, be able to take, to take stock, be able to work within the realm of what you're trying to accomplish, handle it, deal with it, take it. Let's say, for example, perhaps another way of looking at it, let's say a person has this tremendous experience, and they, they make resolutions, and make the, they, they make new achlotas, new resolutions, how to live their lives based on this experience, but they never took stock of the experience. The experience was way beyond them, was way outside of their realm. They'll never match up to that realm again. They'll never really be able to accomplish the great achlotas that they made for themselves because they're not really there. The only way they can really be there is when they actually first, after having this tremendous experience, so to speak, taking stock of it. Dealing with it, understanding it, comprehending it, dealing with it on a real level, and then, now that they have integrated this idea, this experience, they can move on further to the next, they could actually start climbing the ladder even more. So that's what it says over here, that Holoch V'noisa, Avram Avinu was experiencing a Ratzai Vishuv, even greater than the angels. He was experiencing his ultimate state of completion, where he was going to reach the state of perfection. What perfection? The perfection of chesed, as we said. This perfection of the right side, which represents this perfection of closeness. He was going to experience this in the ultimate sense of this experience is taking place through his Ratzai Vishuv, which is Holoch V'noisa. As the Pasuk says, traveling, coming and going, coming and going, coming and going. Because again, when you want to maximize, when you want to fully experience, when you want to be able to fully become part of and uh, handle an experience on its truest level, the only way you can really experience something on its truest form is only when you have, is only when you have the ability to have a Shuv with it. As we'll see more in the, in the Mimer. So says the Alter Rebbe, 
in the parentheses, rak tegabi chayis hamarkova. When it comes to the 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 angels, the chayis of the the angels that were on the chariot, by them it says that they were experiencing this this going forth and retreating. Umadregis Avram Hoysalamailamahem. Avram Avinu was even experiencing a much higher level, Nikra Bishem Holochvalnoisa. Therefore, the words that the Torah uses is not Ratzivishul. By the angels, the Torah and Yecheskel describes it as Ratzivishul, and by Avram Avinu describes it as Holochvalnoisa. So now, Umau Inyan Ratzivishul. So we just gave a 10 minute description, perhaps, of, uh, of Ratzivishul. We gave some sort of idea, concepts, understanding it. Now, the Altarev is going to bring this idea down. In a in a in in a in a, in a, in a, in a, in a describe this idea in, a, in his own words. Hinaiksiv, there's another verse. Now another one. Just when we're learning a mimer, we can sometimes help us to understand how a mimer works. So, you a lot of times learn the Alter mimer. He quotes four or five psukim, and you have to follow with. Right? He takes you, as I said before, down different paths, different avenues. We just went through four or five different psukim, all emphasizing concepts. Al-Tarev is moving with, it's just like, the, we're going already, we're moving. We have to sometimes slow down to realize that these are new concepts that are being discussed. Al-Tarev is now going to move on to a new concept called Oyster Shalom Bim Raimo. God makes peace with the heavenly realms, the Bim Raimo in his holy realms. It's a new concept. What does this mean? So he says as follows, Shiesh Eish Umayim. There's two forces. There's the force of water, of fire, and there's a force of water. We know the nature is that water extinguishes fire. Whenever there's a fire, what do you use? You use water. That's the nature. Water extinguishes the fire. But God makes this form that water and fire could coexist, that the Mayim does not extinguish the Yesh. And so we have to understand, says the So first of all, we're talking about God in the spiritual realms again. We're talking about in the world of spirituality. What, what is the fire and water in the spiritual realms? What does it mean that there's fire and water in the spiritual realms? What does that even mean? What does it mean that there's And what is the spiritual counterpart, so to speak, of fire being extinguished by water that we say God doesn't allow it to happen? So simple question again. Everything in the physical world really has a counterpart spiritually. When the Torah uses physical descriptions to a spiritual concept, we have to really understand what the spiritual concept is. So the Rebbe says as follows. The Rebbe says as follows. These two forces of fire and water, they represent this constant struggle in the physical world between the water and the fire, right? Let's say in Australia now, there's so much land being burnt up by fires. Right? And animals galore are being killed because of the fires. What's the problem? There's no water. It's a dry land. So fire just explodes, right? There's nothing holding it back. If there'll be water, there wouldn't be enough fire. I mean, enough water, right? There's a constant force. If you want to say, let's say, within the worlds of physics or the worlds of the, in the worlds of the, the scientific world, you have, you know, you have weak force and strong force. You have the magnetic force. You have constant forces at play that work against each other. You have positive energy and negative energy. And that somehow they have to meet out. That's why when you have a current flowing through an electri electrical device or whatever, there's the pluses and the minuses trying to balance each other out. It's oyster shalom. They're trying to make peace. Says the Al-Tarebbe, this idea of the spiritual water and fire, the reason why down here there's a, ba a battle between water and fire is because water and fire personify this idea of Rotsi Vishuv, the spiritual Rotsi Vishuv. 
Eishumayim are not just Eishumayim, they're not just water and fire, but their counterpart spiritually is this experience of Ratzi Vishuv. It's the experiences of extreme elation, extreme passion, extreme explosion, like a fire. And at the same time, there's also the Shuv, the retreat, like water. Water represents the idea of a retreat. So let's just focus on this idea just again for a moment. Eish represents passion, generally. Water represents cool collective logic. When a person that has an experience, usually what's heightened the most is his emotions, right? The emotions get the best of him. Most people, when they're experiencing something, don't think about it. If they are, then they're probably not, mu they're probably not much experiencing. I've told students of mine in the past, when they go out, let's say, to date or whatever, so they, 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 they're discussing you know, the date and this, that. I said, listen, you can't have a date and analyze the date as you're going. If you're analyzing the date as you're dating, then you're not, at the, you're not dating, you're not experiencing, you're just, you're just analyzing. If you're using logic to try to understand an experience, you're not experiencing much, right? right? The idea of being present. Present doesn't mean you're analyzing it. Present means you're allowing the experience to take over. That's an emotional experience, that's ish, that's fire. Fire allows you to get involved. Sometimes a person could be sitting in, the, in, 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 a, in, a, in a realm and, 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 and there's great uh, inspiration going on, but they don't feel it. Why? Because they're thinking too much. They're too much in their head. They don't get inspired, right? Whether it's a musical, like we spoke before, let's say a musical event or a, a speaker or so on. But it, just, it, doesn't, it doesn't stimulate them because for them, they're, they're not connected. They're, they're, they're disconnected from the experience. They're not living in the experience. They're disconnected because their logic is what's governing and taking them over. And that's a problem. That's Aish. Aish is allowing you to be in the experience, allowing you to experience, and allowing you to feel this tremendous passion. Mayim is the counterpart. Mayim cools off the experience, right? Because Mayim is the logic. Mayim is the sense of, oh, let's make sense of the things over here, right? Sometimes you have people that, you know, you get into a conversation, and, and, and let's say, you know, you have this a lot of times, let's say, in, in um, people, let's say, who have... Uh, these logical people who have struggles with, with uh, spiritual ideas or godly ideas, or let's say stories of Rabbeim or of Tzadikim. And who says this is the way it was? You know, like they bring in the coldness of logic to try to somehow remove the experience or remove the truth of something, which is always a mistake. But that's what Mayim is. Mayim represents the idea of water, represents cold, logical calculations. It makes you realize that maybe you're not at the point that you need to be. And it makes you realize that this is maybe is more to what you want. And an experience, like we said before, it could drive you to a places that you shouldn't be, perhaps. And, and water, so to speak, brings you back to your place and says, no, you got to be here. So says the Rebbe, the Eish Omayim heim heim bechinas ratzi v'shuv. Ukenoida she yisoyit ha'eish belev shisham hatzimoyin bechinas ratzi. He says, where's fire? Fire represents the heart. Because over there is the thirst for this level of ratzi. Why the heart? Because again, we know when we're excited, what do we feel? We feel our heart. Yeah, the passion, the feeling of excitement is something related to the heart. The heart actually moves and pumps more. As again, we said the idea of the heart pumping, right? That's the idea of Ratsu. So that's the idea of passion, of fire of the heart. Okay. So he continues and he says, Ukemaimer. So there's a famous statement that's quoted in, in, uh, in the Sefi Yitzira. Imrots libcha daika. If your heart races, why does it say if your heart races? So now Dr. Rebbe makes now a new connection. So we're jumping, we're making connections. We're connecting the idea of Eish, the physical Eish to Rotsay, which is a spiritual thing. But now we need to bring it back down within the human realm. Because we went from the very physical fire to show its 
concept, which is Ratsui. But the concept of Ratsui is an idea that has to play itself out in our psychology. What is the psychology of Ratsui? The psychology of Ratsui experienced in the physical heart is this idea of getting excited about something. What initiates, what stimulates, what gets us excited about something is when we understand it. Now, this may sound a little bit different to what I said a moment ago about logic cooling us off, but where you could really start getting excited about something is only because you fully grasp it, when you fully identify with it. Now, especially in terms of God. In, God, in godliness, we don't, we don't necessarily see godliness the way we're speaking about here in Hasidus. We see God, we see the world. When we're misbeining, when we contemplate on godliness, and therefore we get a deeper appreciation of it, we understand it, we see it. It's like a lot of times, you know, I would say when my father-in-law gives over a, 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 an idea of Hasidus, people feel like it's real to them. What does it mean it's real? You understand it. It became part of you because you feel like you could handle it. Right? Till now you are learning an idea that sounded somewhat off, you know, aloof and distant and not relatable. And now all of a sudden you feel like you could handle it as graspable. graspable. It's something you could grasp with your hands. It's something you could handle. That idea, that tool is the tool of the heart, which represents Bina. It says in the, in the Pasuk HaLeyo, Bina Liba. The heart is connected to Bina. That's why it says about a woman, the Gemara says that a woman nurses from where her heart is, right? Animals nurse from their lower part of their body, and a woman, a, a, a human woman, a woman nurses from where her, 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 her heart is. Why? Because bina yaseira nitno leisha. A woman has this tremendous bina, this tremendous understanding, and to bring that out in her child or whatever, that's where the child nurses closer to the heart of the mother. That's what the Gemara says. But there's a correlation that we see between the heart and understanding. Doesn't mean that the brain is in the heart. We know that's not uh, true. But the idea is, is that the heart, which is being stimulated by this knowledge, the heart now gets, feel, when you learn something, you come out and you're like, wow, that sounded great, that sounded overwhelming, and you don't remember a word that's going on, that's very nice, but after five minutes, there's nothing to it. But if you learned it, you understood it, you felt good about it because you remember it and you know what's really going on, that stimulates some action within the heart. There, there's a concept of a, a, a bina that's relatable to the heart. So what, what happens is the ish, the fire, the passion, which is the physical ish, the passion of the physical ish, translated into the rotzai, is going through this bina liba, the connection to the heart, with its, which is the bina. As he says, when you're misbeina, when you contemplate, the God will say in Baruch on the greatness of God, shikishmoi hu. God, the name that we define God by, by being infinite, God has no beginning, God has no end. God, the mere relationship that we could relate to God is hoidoi. Now these are lofty ideas. We could spend a whole year just discussing these topics themselves, which is what does it mean God ain't loy soif, ain't Right? And what does it mean, Rakhoite? But just to make, give a, a simple, short idea about this, and I'm sure those who've learned the Hasidus in the year, past years know exactly what this idea is, at least on a very general level for sure. Ain't Sof. We say God has no end. What does it mean, God has no end? So we know everything physical has an end, right? Light travels, but light eventually has to come to an end. Light is not infinite. Eloi Sof represents this level of godliness, the way godliness permeates within the physical, within the spiritual, within all the realms, that there's an, e there's an equality. There's no separation between hires and lowers. It's just one general flow, like a straight flow of, of let's say, electricity. Just there's no, it's not used for a light bulb or for a, for, for, for a cell phone or for, or for a computer. It's just a, a one straight bolt of energy, so to speak. But it has an endless, it has an endless stream, so to speak, of going. Eloi Tichla, 
represents this idea, means represents this idea that it's not defined by anything. It's not broken down into a specific form, that it has to be functioning for this or not something else. Electricity is the greatest example I think we can relate to in the physical world because you can use electricity for almost anything. Electricity is used for everything. It stimulates our neurons in our bodies to, to the microphone that I'm speaking to, to the video camera that's, 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 that's playing, to everything around us. So in a sense, it has this enloy sof, enloy tichla, tachlis point, because it's so to speak, that's why Chassidus always uses light as the example, right? Because it's a pure raw energy that enhances everything and could be used with anything. But again, even then, it's physical, so it does have limited properties, right? So again, on a very general level, but when you think about God, when you think about God's energy, and thinking about who God is or what God, godliness is, not God, God is far removed from these levels, but godliness, when you focus on the godliness about and you really contemplate what his ideas mean, and you realize that God's infinite abilities, God's endless abilities, God's undefined abilities, and then you realize the only thing you're really relating to is Haida. You're only relating to the ray of God. You're relating to the part of God, that, so to speak, that's even removed from that. Because what do we relate to? We relate to a, 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 a finite existence, not an infinite existence, right? If we would relate to it to an infinite existence, we wouldn't be here. Because we're all finite. The whole world is finite. Everything is limited. The table is limited. My, my, my body is limited. My, my, my brain comprehension is limited, however spiritual that is. That means everything is limited. So we can only relate to God within the terms of the reality we live in. You can't relate to God in, 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 in infinite terms because we don't we live in an infinite world. We live in a finite world. So how much of God could we relate to is Hoidoi. And God is far beyond that. So removed, so overwhelmingly removed from all the ideas. And you're like, wow. It's like, perhaps for an example, you know, you meet a person. And as you start talking to this person, you just realize this person is just overwhelming, it just knows so much, and just is tremendously talented and gifted and has all this knowledge, and like you just want more and more and more and more and more. Now you realize you know, you know nothing of this person. You have the tip of the iceberg of this person. But that itself is like the teaser that says, I want more of this. I want to be close to this person. This person is there's an attractiveness. Every person has an attractive, is attracted to logic, to, to, to talent, to whatever. We're attracted to many different aspects in this world, whatever the reasons are. But that feeling of attraction is, is a stimulation to say, I want to be connected to something higher than me, something greater than me, something more overwhelming. That's why we're attracted to people like that. Within the, within the relationship between husband and wife, between a man and a woman, each party is, related, is, is, is attracted, and I'm not talking about the physical side, I'm not talking about physical beauty, which is also true, but we're talking about purely in the intellectual, emotional realm, or the psychological realm, and the intuitive realm, you feel a certain attraction to the other person, which makes you want, which draws you, that means that there's something higher, something removed, something distant, that you're trying to be drawn to. A healthy marriage is when there's constantly that feeling of attraction. If you're missing the level of attraction to each other, usually that marriage fails at some point. Or at least it'll be a very dull marriage. It'll be a very hard marriage to feel very close in. Because it eventually it peters out. Because there's nothing, there's nothing, there's nothing pull. I know this person, I've left it. Once you know it too, now, you know, it's like, you know, you eat the same piece of cake every single day, you're bored of it already. You know, like how much time could you eat, spend on the same thing? There's a lot to talk about that. That's not the point here, the chassidus. But the point I'm saying is that the, 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 the experience of being drawn to something represents something that you feel higher and much deeper. So when you think about God, what's going to draw us to God? What's going to make us feel close to God? What makes us feel close and drawn to God is precisely when we're starting to focus on understanding that we are connected to the mere, very limited ray of godliness. What we see as God and get excited when we dive and we say these great words of godliness, we're so removed from what real God is. 
we connect to the Rebbe, and the Rebbe gives us some insight. Even that is choydoy. So when you contemplate on this idea, and you realize the truth is we're connected to God's essence. Let's not, get, let's not forget that we're still connected. We are a part of God's essence, but in our re revealed state, so to speak, in our conscious state, we don't feel that. We feel ourselves as distant and separated, and the maximum we feel we're connected to is Hoyde. But the Alter Rebbe says that stimulates, a, a, for when you contemplate this and you understand it, it stimulates a fire, a passion in your heart, which draws you, rough, so it makes you feel you want to just be part of this ultimate experience. You don't, you don't want to be limited. It's like, for, let's say, for example, um, perhaps a person is, let's say, you know, uh, they come to this you know, massive party. They walk in, and the front is like a whole bunch of you know, adurs and drinks and all that and a little bit of music, and they're like, wow, this is amazing, it's a great party. Then finally, someone, a friend of yours, like, hey, come with me, come with me. And you go into this next room, and this huge room with so much more excitement, and there's this, there's this band going on, and there's this show, and this, and you're like totally blown away. You thought the party was that, that room over there, right? And, and he like, you're just so overwhelmed, and you want more, you want to get, and you realize there's even a third, or third room, and, that's what happens. You sort of speak, travel with, obviously not in the physical realm, you're traveling through these great deeper experiences of what you thought God is. Which is actually in a point to mention, again, we're learning the Mimer, how much we're going to accomplish or finishing it, I don't know, but the learning of the Mimer is always important to pra for, practica for practicality. We have to learn, one of the ideas Chassidus is trying to get us, again, changing our consciousness of our connection to God, we can't stay with the same image we had of as God as when we were as a child. A lot of times people struggle with God. Why do they struggle with God? Because they still remember God as the way they were told as a child. The God that we had as a child is not God. I mean, it's a part of God. It's an essence of God in its, in its some form. But that's not the God we relate to. If we're still davening with the same visions of God the way we had as a child, that's why Judaism has, that's why God doesn't have much of a meaning in our life. In order to really feel connected to God, it has to be with on our level of understanding where we are today. On my level of my comprehension, am I connecting to God through my fullest ability? Because there's much more to God than the way I was told as a child. When I, God was a, when I was a child, God was a superman. This huge Hulk monster, I don't know. That's what God was, but that's not what God is. The Rebbe has a fascinating sikha where he discusses why is it that we teach children that God has a hand. Doesn't that seem to be a little bit kvirdik, uh, right, against God? Uh, in Judaism, you're not supposed to sacrilegious, you're not supposed to say God has any physical dimensions, whatever. But the preface says, no, for a child, that, what he described, what, in his imagination, that's the greatest he could comprehend of what God is. But once you get older, you gotta move with the time, you gotta move with your age, you gotta move. And that's what Chassidus tries to draw us closer and closer, higher and higher. And as you contemplate more and more, you realize how much you're so far, and how removed you are, and how much you're not connected, and that stimulates a rotzi. And that's what he says over here. And then you think about the fact that God's malchus, malchus represents God's element, the way God, so to speak, functions within the worlds. God has that essence of him that he needs, that he brings out in order for the worlds to function. So that essence of God is malchus kailamim, is the energy, the life force, the vitality of all worlds. Shekol oilamim, all worlds. Chayusam v'kayumam, their life and their sustenance, v'hishavusam and their formation is ma'ayin liyesh, is from a state of nothing to a state of something. Which is from God's Malchus, it's a ray, So what is he saying over here? He's, he's ascribing more of what we said before. What is, what is the Rebbe saying? The Rebbe is saying is, so we know, again, these concepts are lofty concepts that are discussed a lot in Hasidus, but just to explain the basics, we know the world was created, as we say, Ma'ain Liyesh. Now the general translation of Ma'ain Liyesh means from nothing into something, right? This idea is expressed in, in, in Greek ideas of, of the idea of, uh, 
of, of, of yesh ma'ayin, of a koyeche yuli, of a hylik matter that was brought in from uh, um, uh, ex nihilo, whatever, whatever the words are, that, that, that there is something that, was, that didn't, there wasn't anything and then something came about. We are brought up with that knowledge, that's again, the knowledge of the child, so you think that there was nothing here and then God created the world. But that's, that's sacrilegious, that's, a, that's the opposite of God, that's not the case. Everything was here, God himself was here, everything was God. So what does it mean yesh ma'ayin? means that we experience our existence, yesh, that's what yesh means, we experience our existence as being independent from something else. That means ayin means that we don't know what, where we come from, we don't sense where we came from. And perhaps uh, an example, an analogy to this is uh, all of us. Do we sense that we come from our parents? We may know we come from our parents, why? Because either we're parents ourselves and we know where our children come from, or because even if we don't have children, because we experience, uh, the, we see the laws of nature, we see how things happen, we see the next person, how they have children, right? But we're not conscious of the fact we come from our parents. We don't feel completely, oh, I'm my parents' ch child, or, or deeper yet, we don't feel like our whole existence is our parents. We think we're totally independent people. We may intellectually or, or rationally or reasonably understand that we come from our parents, that without our parents deciding to get together and having, having us exist, that we wouldn't exist, perhaps, obviously with God's blessing. But we don't relate to that. We experience a yesh ma'ayin. We feel we came from nothing. We just existed. Could I go back to my state before I was in my mother's, my mother's uh, um, uh, uterus? No. I don't remember any of that even when I was in the uterus, even when I did sort of exist. My state of existence purely starts from the moment I became conscious of my existence. That's all. I have no comprehension, no relationship. So some psychologists will tell you that there's deep traumas or deep events that took place in your mind already from before, so you're, so to speak, you don't know it, but you... But again, let's talk practically here speaking, right? That's sort of the idea of Yeshmaid. God made us feel in this world, in this level of where we feel we exist, purely out of nothing, meaning not that we know, not that we don't understand that we come from God's energy and God's light and that we need God to sustain us. We know all that, but we don't sense it. We don't feel it. We don't feel that. We don't feel like without God we will expire. We don't feel that the moment we stop connecting to God, we somehow are dead. We don't feel that way because God wanted it to be that way. And that's another very fundamental idea that Dr. Rebbe explains in the later Hasidus of Dr. Rebbe, more closer to his passing, he laid out for us the fundamental concept, God created this world from his essence, atzmusay matzmusay, because he wanted us to mimic, he wanted us to feel the way he feels, so to speak. God doesn't come from anything, Taka. He's a real nothing, something from nothing. He's the ultimate something, though. There is nothing that precedes him, there can't be anything that precedes him. That idea is something that God wants us to experience because that's the only way we can make a true deer of Dachtainim. But again, that's not the toichen, that's not the essence of this mimer, but it's a point to realize. So the Altarev says when you realize that you're yesh mind, you realize where you come from is an ayin, is a state that you totally don't even relate to, you totally are unconscious of, you're totally far removed from, right? It's like sometimes when you learn physics, you learn science, not that I'm a big, someone who's knowledgeable so much in this field, but the little that I've learned or studied, you become so overwhelmed by the fact that you realize that what you thought is a table is not really a table, right? It's merely atoms with electrons flying around, which is 90% hollow, right? And that's a table. And to you, the table looks so real, looks, looks so sturdy, looks so, so uh, absolute. That's yesh ma'ayin. Obviously, in a much watered-down physical ex example, but the idea is, is that when we begin to realize that our whole existence is not the way we are, 
the way we think we are, that we just exist independent of anything. No, we exist from a source that's much beyond us, that to the point that we call it ayin, that we don't even relate to it because it's ayin, right? That's what makes us realize that we come from the we're from Malchus. David should have created Malchus. Malchus is the point where, so to speak, God cut away, so to speak, his pure energy and allowed a channel, a flow, a little bit of energy to come through. Like, for example, the father who lets off just a tiny drop of semen that allows a child to exist. The whole me, the whole 6.2 or whatever, I'm, I, I, I'm with my whole body, it comes from a tiny drop of Zerahav. That's all it is with my mother's egg. That's, that's my whole Matthias. <laughs> a whole little strand of DNA coming together, creating my whole, human, my whole body. It's a fascinating concept. That's Malchus. Malchus is, so to speak, the, 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 you know, you have in the DNA, you have the cells that in order for the parents to create the zygote, right? The, 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 so they have to, they have to duplicate the, the, their DNA, they have to, right? And, that's, and they both create a peer of DNA, and together you have a new, new something, right? So, so to speak, Malchus is that process of the editing, the DNA process happening. Now you have letters, now you have words. Malchus represents the Dibor. Now you have something that could be communicated or create a world. In, 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 in cosmology, you have this idea perhaps of the expansion, the expanding universe or multi-universes. And one of the ideas of the multi-universes is this idea that every, these worlds that are constantly just exploding out of, so to speak, a DNA, out of, out of a certain natural set of laws called the standard model that has a whole bunch of quarks and other particles that fly around, and all of a sudden it creates this multiplicity in the world, a whole bunch of, a whole bunch of things existing. But it comes from this tiny singularity, this tiny black hole, this tiny drop of energy, but this energy is not tiny, it's everything within it. But it's narrowed down into a small little drop, the Malchus. And from Malchus, descends into us in existence. So could we travel before the black hole? Obviously, if you're right, that's part of uh, maybe uh, um, uh, traveling back in time. But anyway, the point is, is that that's what the Rebbe says here. So when you contemplate this idea that we're just a Araba Alma from God's essence, and for us, God and, and us seemingly don't have a connection. What's our relationship to God? God is merely breaking everything down into this tiny little drop, and from there we come out to existence. He's far removed from the worlds. He's not on the level of Mamala or the level of Seviv. Again, these two words, Mamala and Seviv, are also fundamental concepts that are brought in Hasidus all over the place, which represents two different forms of energy, two different, um, two different ways God, so to speak, communicates into this world. Again, this also could take a number of shiurim in itself to discuss, but again, just a simple explanation of Mamala and Seviv. Mamala represents the energy of God that fills the the existence the way it is in already a, a, a finite level. The way it's already broken down into a specific form and shape, a precise amount of energy that's necessary for that function of that animal. It's like, for example, if you're going to go to the, obviously none of these examples are perfect, but if you go, for example, you want to, let's say this microphone, it needs to recharge. So it has a certain amount of voltage that can handle. If you put too much voltage, you'll explode the whole thing, right? So Mamala is focused on each individual creation has its energy. So how much could the creation relate to God? However much it has God, so to speak, within it, in, in its consciousness, in its Mamala. But then there's the overwhelming energy that allows everything to exist. And that's the soiv of energy. It's the general energy that allows everything to become into existence before it's broken down into parts. Before there is specific existence, there's just general allowing for existence, which is the energy of soiviv. A way that's described between Mamala and soiviv is that soiviv is the form of, is the creator, and Mamala is the animator, the one that gives highs. But in another way you could, um, 
uh, maybe a, 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 a different way to put it is the difference between, between Chaymer and Surah. Chaymer represents the idea of matter, the purity of matter. So let's say you have a, a, a tree. A tree is a big, big, big block of wood. What could you do with a tree? A tree has no, okay, a tree already has a certain image. It's a tree, right? We define it as a tree. It has its surah. But hypothetically, you have an infinite bulk of wood, right? It has no surah, has no image. What can you start? You start carving things out. You could carve out a table, a chair, a pen, a paper. You can make millions of things out of it, right? So, so to speak, the block of wood is like soivib. It's a raw energy. The mimala is the tzir, it's cutting and carving out that there should be a table and a chair and a person and an angel and all these different aspects that come out of it. Obviously it's a rough marshal for this idea, but we're talking about God that's far removed from all those things. And we come at the final product after the cutout, after the mimala and the cutout. That's where we come from. So seemingly this idea means that we're really quite removed from this, this essence level of God. And that stimulates a Ratzi. That stimulates, says the Rebbe, where we feel Asher al He has a longing and desire to give himself up. He doesn't care about his Mitzias anymore. He doesn't care about his own significance. It's like, again, we said he spoke, he's speaking to this genius or this highly creative person. And you're like, I, don't care. I just want to be around this person the whole time. I'll do anything. I don't need my existence to exist. Because for you, you realize your pure existence anyways don't really exist. You're existing on a very, very small, minute level of godliness, you want to be incorporated in the ultimate level of godliness. And that's the desire the Rotsi that's expressed, that's, ex that's felt, that you want to be incorporated into the audience of Mamish, Ladovka by Mamish. You know, it's like, maybe I, again, a personal marshal for myself, sometimes I get into the mode, if recently I haven't had the chance, you know, with two children, Baruch Hashem and everything, but when I get into a mode to be able to sit and learn and just get into a headspace of thinking and learning, it's like, you just want to travel and live in that world. You don't think about eating, you don't think about sleeping, you don't think about anything else. You just wish that everything else is, is, is not necessary, you just can live in that world. So obviously that's within, I mean, a lot of people I'm sure experience this, let's say artists, creator people in general, I think have this where they get into this headspace where they're just totally thrown into what they're doing because they're just, they want to be completely bottled. They are, let's say, musicians, right? Musicians, when they create creative music or artists creating art, they're bottled at that moment to this higher energy, this greater energy. It's a Ratsui experience. It's completely letting go of anything physical, trying to let go of any limitation, just allowing yourself to be completely incorporated in this energy. And that's it. And you lose sight and focus about anything else that's going on around you. Life doesn't really exist anymore, almost. Right? It's only the thing you're focused on. You don't hear anybody, you don't care about anybody, or whatever it is. You don't need anybody, almost. Right? So, so, so that's sort of this Ratsui experience of the Ur and Saf, of just wanting to just be in that bliss of godliness, that's all it is, that's all you want. Says the Rebbe, That's why the angels, getting back to the angels, that's why the angels are in this experience of Ratzi V'shuv. Because when they're experiencing this energy, when they realize their source, they realize where they come from, when they start sensing their energy, when they realize where they come from, that they come from God's essence, His infinite chainly self, no beginning. They are burning with a flame, like a flame, a vision of flame of fire in this tremendous passion, this Rotsi experience. He says, because it's like this energy that overwhelms them, this thing that completely takes them over. As we said before, you're captivated by a person, you're captivated in the arts, you're captivated by whatever it is that just takes you over, and that's what they're experiencing, these highest are experiencing at that time, that they just want to be incorporated as, uh, 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 um, 
שהחייס הנמשך להם היא היא מסלח אסתם מבחינת רוצי. גם כן לי יש ועל אישך תשוקוסך. That it should be like the concept of uh, the, the Torah describes that the woman God told Chava after she sinned with the Yitzhadas, that she, after she sinned with the tree, if eating from the tree, God said that you'll desire your husband, but he'll be in charge. That means physically the wife wants to have relations, physical relations with the husband, and not necessarily the husband is interested, right? And the woman can't stimulate herself necessarily. So therefore, I mean, whatever, today's day and age things are different perhaps, but the point is, is that the nature is, that your nature, the nature is, is that you should, you should, you should demand, the woman, the recipient needs the giver, needs the person to be, you need the giver, and that's the idea of the angels. The angels are feeling this energy pulsating through them, they're feeling the giver, and therefore they just want to connect to the giver. They just, they're longing for the giver, because they're just the recipient at this point. They're not giving anything. So just like the woman who's receiving, she needs the giver. That's the idea of the angels at this particular point. Like a flame that just flares up on its own. It's just like an unstoppable passion. But what happens after this, after they got this tremendous intellectual realization, this experience, perhaps this, even this intuition. They receive this level of shuv, this retreat state. As we mentioned before, or if your heart races, shuv la'echad, return to the state of oneness. What does that mean to return to the state of one? This represents the level of water which is in the brain. The level of chokhmah. So he says over here, so what, what, what happens? What's the shuv? The shuv makes you retreat. It makes you come back. It makes you realize that, that there, is, there's a, there, is, there is a reality out there. You're getting caught up in, the, in this tremendous excitement, this tremendous emotion, this tremendous whatever experience you're having, but you retreat back into the state. What state is causing this? The level of Chochmah. What's the level of Chochmah? So Chochmah is Koyachma. What's Koyachma? Koyachma represents a true bittel, a true nullification of yourself. What does that mean? That means the person realizes that this is, this is not really them. They're not yet there. They're not at the point where they could just be completely endurance of the angels, as we said before, when they experience this Rotsi experience, they're so captivated and overwhelmed, but they think that, that they could be part of it. It's like the person who's pulling the, like we mentioned about the party, the other, the friend coming and saying, come into the party, right? And then this other person, the person who comes is so overwhelmed, but they realize they just don't belong here, right? You know, sometimes they come to a party, you thought the party will be, you know, just a whole bunch of friends, and then you walk in and you see like all these fancy people, and, there's a, and you just feel uncomfortable. It's just not you, it's not where you belong. That's the koyachma, that's the chokhmah that kicks in. That's the realization of mind that realizes that your mission is not to be here. You belong in that other room maybe. That's your party, that's where you belong. Now, that doesn't mean you don't have a relationship to this other level, but it means it's something you have to work on to build on. And that's who the koyachma, the chokhmah that happens over here. Now, what happens over here is, is that so fine. So you become aware, you become conscious of the fact that you know, maybe you're overextending yourself. Maybe you're trying too hard to be part of something that you're not part of, or try to be incorporated in an energy that you're not yet ready to really handle. So you retreat. But what happens is, is that the retreat is not satisfactory. It's not miravis atzmei. It doesn't quench the thirst. You don't feel good back where you are. We'll see soon in Avoida how this plays out, but perhaps to give an example for this, a marshal that I was told when I was learning Hasidus back in Yeshiva was that let's say a, 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 a person who experienced a bocher, who experienced his whole life being by the Rebbe, right? So he's constantly being 
overwhelmed by the Fabrengas and the excitement and the Rebbe's talking and getting Yechidus and everything like that. And then the Rebbe says, you go on Shluchus. You go to Australia. Right? My grandfather, Rabbi Groner of Shalom, was told to go to Australia. He was one of the first to move out so far to Australia. It's ridiculous. So, right? He didn't want to go. He didn't want to go. Leave everything. Give up, first of all, besides friends and family. Learning, being able to spend time learning the whole time, but being by the Rebbe, I mean, there's nothing, there's nothing great than being connected to that source and being part of that source, you know. The Rebbe says, no, you go. So you realize that, that your place is not to be in 770 anymore. Your place is not to be here. It's exciting, but this is not your place. You got to go there. You got to go to Australia. That's your shlichus. That's your mission. But when you're there, it doesn't mean you're, 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 you feel satisfied, right? It doesn't mean you don't want to come back. Every moment you have a chance to come back, you want to come back, right? Every time you have that opportunity. To, to, so let's say, for example, maybe again, another marshal for this is a person who's busy with their art or their learning and they're being overwhelmed and they realize, you know what, I do have to eat, I do have to sleep, or I do have to take care of other people, I do have to be aware of other things. So they retreat back and they realize this can't be their full occupation, you know, but they still want to go back, you know, they're looking forward to going back. So that's what he says over here. That that the, the water, so to speak, in the brain, meaning this logical, contemplative retreat, so to speak, is not miravenous at It doesn't quench the thirst. that's of the feeling of the flame of the fire. Shibalev lias Doesn't again, this water doesn't cool off. Doesn't doesn't extinguish the flame. That there should be a complete cessation, a complete stop of this feeling. Because this flame fire could reignite. Now you realize that you shouldn't be there, right? So you, 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 you tread with dread, you know, so to speak. You're walking on eggshells. You realize I shouldn't try to go too far. But you still have this, at moments, you're like, oh no, no, I'm going to push myself to go further, right? You run into it. You want to be part of it so much. Um, to be boiled up again in this flame of fire, but yesterday's with even more intensity. As the Sefer Yitzir says, there's Eish Mimayim, that from the water itself you can have fire. What does it mean, Eish Mimayim? You could experience sometimes from the retreat mode this greater desire to want to even go more. And this is the process, the Ratzay Vishuv level of Avoida that Avram Avinu was experiencing as, as we're trying to get to where he's reaching higher levels because as he retreats, realizing maybe he's not yet at that level, that forces out a greater energy to try to get even more. And that constant upper, upper climb makes and reaches the level of perfection. And that's what he says over here. There's many levels of fire. There's a fire that consumes food, so to speak, eats, and there's a fire that drinks. This was the level of Avram Avinu Holoch ben Noisatam. constantly working within this climbing and retreating. A fire that's above water and a water that's above fire. Until he's going climbing and climbing. Each level you climb, there's a new Aish, there's a new Mayim. Every new experience you have of godliness, every new experience you have. So let's say you're, you're a cult, you know. I should maybe not use this motion, but let's say a person, their first, their first time, a person, let's say, took, uh, I don't know, smoked marijuana. So they got this tremendous exhilaration, this tremendous excitement. You know, the, the idea of chasing the high, the first high, right? <laughs> that experience is over, right? Now the new experience has to kick in, right? I'm not saying it works out in this. Maybe this is a very bad motion, actually. It doesn't work out at all. But let's say you're learning. You learned something for the first time. You got excited. Wow, this is, this is what you understand it. 
Okay, and then you, okay, you close the book, you put it away, and then you're like, one second, I'm so excited, I want to go more. The next time you're going to go through this process, you're going to learn it on a much deeper level. You're going to see it for much more energy, because you already learned what you learned already, right? You already saw what you saw, you already experienced what you're going to experience. So the next time you experience, even if it's the same thing, it's on a much deeper level. That means you've already penetrated deeper. It's like dating. The first time you meet the person, so you know the person somewhat on a superficial level. That's what you know the person on, very superficially. It's exciting, you, you may like the person, you find the points of connection. So fine, you want to go out again. When you go back, you're like, okay, you know, okay, now it's time to go home. You know, you're not yet living with the person, right? It's the first date. So you go home, but afterwards, you still, I want to meet this person again, and then you meet them a second time. But the second time you're meeting the same person, the person didn't change. All you were becoming is aware of more of the person, deeper. It's the same person with the same sort of experience, but a deeper experience of the same person. And that's what's happening here as well. The Rod Yeshuv is making you have a deeper experience. It's allowing you to connect to a much deeper self, a much deeper essence, a much deeper reality, and that's in this case of God. And that's what Avraham Avinu was trying to do. He was trying to perfect his level of chesed, of ava, of closeness, by going through every time the Rod Yeshuv process, experiencing it on a much deeper level. Ad until Shinasa Markavi becomes the ultimate chariot of God. Fine, so this is Avram Avinu's Avleda. So says the Rebbe, Ah, but that's all a spiritual traveling. This is a traveling a sp- experience in a, in a pure spiritual sense. This is only for real holy people that are constantly in front of God. These are people that are constantly experiencing God and the levels of God's holy angels. Not everybody has the ability to experience this. Not everybody can go through this process of experiencing deeper, deeper levels through their own process, through their own working. Shiara, all of that, there should be this Ruach Memorum, a spirit of God should penetrate in them. A person can never do it himself. Avraham Avinu wasn't able to just experience God himself. God gave him the opportunity. But not everybody's privy to this, to get this, this experience. Yeah, the Ratzi Vishuv is running returning. So now we need Matan Torah. So Avram Avinu was great. He didn't need Matan Torah, so to speak. We'll see later why he, he, there was a deficiency in his Avaida. But Avram Avinu didn't need Matan Torah. He was great the way he was, because his Avaida was to, to get to his essence, to get to his ultimate state of Negbov, of Chesed. That was happening just through his Halach Vishuv in his Ruchniistic Avaida. But for everybody else, we needed the Torah. We need the physical mitzvahs, because in them, and through them, in other words, now, for everybody else, so we're lost, so we'll never experience God, we'll never be able to be close to God. Why? Because we can't experience the way Avraham Avinu did. So, so we should stop right now. Right? I saw recently uh, an interview with uh, one of... Uh, one of our one of, a chassid, a pretty big famous chassid in the community, who was describing that when he was younger, let's say 14 years old, he, he got a little bit uh, a little bit shicker, whatever, was a little drunk, and he got a little upset, and he wrote into the Rebbe a letter, like, why should I continue learning? And he's, by the way, a big Tamil chacham, people you know, respect him tremendously for his knowledge. But at the time, he said, what's my purpose in sitting and learning for? I'll never make it to the, like, the greatness of the Alter Rebbe or the Chef Schmeitz and all these great other people that started disseminating great terrorist studies by a very, very young age. I says, I'll never make it. So why should I even try? Right? And the Rebbe, they explained to them, you know, that's not the way it works. You know, everybody has their mission and, and, and whatever it is. But sort of, if we're going to be left back in the stage where we can never experience the Ratz of Yishuv, then what's our purpose? How, we get, how do we bring out this experience? And especially, Torah is not, the, the purpose of God wasn't just for the unique few, because then he wouldn't create the rest of us. 
Chassidus here, the Rebbe answers this question by saying that that's what the purpose of having the Torah mitzvahs. Through Torah mitzvahs, we mimic this process of Ratzav in our own experience, and therefore we actually experience Ratzav And as we'll see, this actually is a deeper Ratzav It's a more real Ratzav It actually brings about a deeper connection, albeit though maybe not in the same way as Avram Avinu did, and not in the same experience or the same consciousness, but this is the idea of what we're doing. And in fact, as we know from other places in Chassidus, only precisely through this process could we actually accomplish our mission. Avram Avinu couldn't accomplish the mission because he was, so to speak, it was selfish. It was all within himself. It was his connection to God, not selfish in Avram's selfishness. God, Avram was selfless. He was completely selfless. But in terms of the greater picture of the avoid of the whole world, he couldn't effectuate the world. We precisely through our avoid of Ratzav Yishuv actually experience, create the ultimate purpose. So that's what he says over here. He says, that through the level of the Torah mitzvahs in the physical world, what's this concept? He says, in the physical Torah, the physical actions of Torah, you have these both two levels of Eish and Mayim. Why? So now we have to, so to speak, what the Altar is going to do now, he's going to actually define Eish and Mayim different. Till now, Eish was passion and Mayim was logic, right? And that's how we understood Ratzi because we're, different, we're working with a different model, a different system of Eish Amayim, a different system of Ratzi Vishuv, it's going to have to take on a different form. In other words, we're not actually doing the same exact type of Ratzi Vishuv. Eish Amayim now are going to mean something different a little bit. And that's what he starts to explain now. He says that Eish Amayim over here represents difference. What is the nature of Eish? He says, First of all, let's focus on Torah being the element of water. Why is Torah the element of water? What's the main characteristic of, fire, of water? Water, before we said water was logic. Water also, its characteristics is to flow downwards, right? That's the whole purpose of water. The great aqueducts of the Romans was to get the, the, the flow of water into, right? So they had to create it on a way that the water flows down, because that's the nature of water. Water flows down. But the purity of water is, or the, the, the element of water is, is that it remains pure all the way out all the way through. The same water that traveled from a very high place, from a very high mountain, coming all the way down the mountains, the same water. It didn't change. It's all the same. Torah represents water in that sense. It's the very same Torah, the way Torah is Lamaila, the way Torah is on the heavenly spheres, the way Torah is in essence of God, the way it travels back into our world, into our physical world, doesn't change. It's the same Torah. It's the same exact essence of God, the way it travels down here into this world. And it's this idea of going from a higher place to a lower place. Another idea of a higher to a lower place is this idea of what is the idea of Hamshacha. The idea of Hamshacha is this idea of drawing something down. In Torah, we have the ability to draw down like water. We have the ability to bring something down. And obviously, what we mean over here is God's essence, as we're going to see. But that's, the, again, the equivalent of the Eish, the, of Mayim, the, 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 the Ratzi Veshuv, the Eishu Mayim, the Mayim, which is compared to the Shuv that we're talking about over here, is this idea of drawing down, bringing something down. But not just bringing it down. And so to say, a lot of times, you have, let's say, a teacher explaining something to a student, so they have to explain it, right? So they water it down. <laughs> They water it down, right? They have to, so to speak, remove it from its high levels of contemplation, of, of, of complexities, and, and bring it down into a much more, so to speak, as we say in Hebrew, mitzumsumdika fashion. We have to create simsuma. We have to, it has to be brought down in a much more relatable sense, right? That's what a teacher does. A good teacher knows how to do it well, and a deep, real deep teacher knows how to bring down high lofty concepts even to a smallest child. You know, we look at the teachers who teach aleph phases, eh, that's the only thing they know. To be teaching aleph phase means you have to be a very, very, <laughs> to communicate to a little child means you have a very high level of neshama and seichel. But anyway, that's the idea of mind. 
But the difference is, is that when the teacher communicates, he's not dealing with the purity itself. He has to change it somewhat. It has to go. That's usual Seder Hishtashlis. Usual Seder Hishtashlis that the thing that comes down, as it comes down, it takes on a different form. It changes somewhat. It doesn't have the same thing. Versus Torah remains pure all the way through. Torah does not change at all. Torah is the same Torah, the way it's above, it's below. It doesn't move anywhere. I, above, it doesn't deal with physical items. In the physical, in the spiritual realms, there's no physical items. Moshe Rabbeinu is learning the Torah he learned in this world, but he's learning it purely spiritually. He's not learning it physically. That doesn't make a difference because just because the application is different doesn't mean the essence is different. You could have a different application to the same thing. We said electricity. It's the same electricity that's being used for the microphone as it's being used for my neurons and my brain. It's just a different application. That's the way Torah represents the same function all the way through, through all, all stages. It doesn't change to say there's This is also an idea why in Hasidus we like, the Hasidus uses the word or versus Shefa. In, 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 in the philosophers, in the Jewish philosophy, in their books, they write a lot about Shefa. Or even in Nahabad world, we use the word Shefa. The problem with Shefa is that Shefa is, comes from the word Mashpia. A mashpi is like a teacher. That means they have to, so to speak, they give over an essence, but it's in, so to speak, in a changed form. It's not just the purity itself, or is the purity itself. That's sort of an idea that, again, that's a whole share in itself, but that's sort of the idea that here we have water retaining its purity the way it is. Again, he says it's called water, don't call water twice. What is this referring to? So this is referring to a Gemara. The Gemara tells us in Chagiga, that, uh, that uh, there was uh, Rabbi, uh, Rabbi Akiva and four, three other members, Ben Azai, Rabbi Elisha Ben Avuya, um, I don't remember the fourth one right now, who went into the Pardes. The Pardes is this, the lofty realms of godliness. They went into the lofty realms of godliness. They were experiencing godliness on very high levels. Rabbi Akiva warned them before they go. The Gemara says that Ben Azai freaked out. He went crazy. And, uh, right, not, only Rabbi Akiva went and survived. Rekiva warned them, he says, you're going to reach a point where you're going to call, you're going to see water, you're going to think it's water, and you're going to say, mayim, mayim, it's water, it's water. Don't say mayim, mayim, because that's not true, that's not what it is, that's a mirage, it's what you think it is, that's not really what it is. So that's the spirit, that's the story, that's the Gemara. Hasidus takes this idea and explains it on a deeper level, what it means mayim, mayim, as we're going to see in a moment, mayim, 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 mayim means, it means, the, Rabbi Kiva was telling these other con, uh, um, colleagues, when you're going to go up there and you're going to see the water, meaning the Torah, you're going to think the Torah up there is different than the Torah down here. He's saying, my and my, there's two types of water. There's Torah above and there's Torah below. You're going to think that they're just disconnected. And you're going to want to be connected maybe to the Torah above, and you're not going to see the connection. He says, don't do that. That's a mistake. Because there is no two waters. There is two waters only in the way that they branch off from above to below. There's the, the, the source of the water traveling downwards, but in its purity, as we said before, in its essence, it's all the same. And that's what he says, What's The upper spiritual realms of water represents the realms of Chochmah, the ocean of Chochmah, the Yudilah, which represents the letter Yud. Yud represents the dot, the essence of God being, again, the singularity, so to speak, the black hole that contains all the essence within that hole. This level is the purity of Torah, the way Torah doesn't even come to a state of yet existing, so to speak, in the way we know it. It's Torah in its purest essence. It's Torah the way Torah is God's essence and not yet formulated or not yet captured into any details. It doesn't have any form yet. It, doesn't, it hasn't been broken down into anything yet. As we know, we know Torah comes from Chachma, that it's revealed from Chachma. In other words, in from the very beginning stages of, of Torah, Torah comes from a point where there's no, you know, we learn Torah, we're learning Torah now. 
it's very relatable, it's logical, it's relatable in the physical world, we relate to ideas. That's the way Torah is something that we relate to in this world, right? But in its pure essence, not that this isn't true, but in its pure essence, it's not at all the way it looks. There is no definition at all over there. It's yud, it's adapt, it's all it is. It's chachma, pure chachma. From there, it starts revealing itself into different stages. It's like, for example, a person becoming conscious of an idea in their mind. The first stages of the idea is very blurry. There's no outline, there's no def definition. It's not clear to them. Once they break it down into the world of Bina and on, they start becoming more aware of what this concept is and they understand it better and become more aware. It develops into an idea for itself. It's like watching a, a painter or an artist creating an outline of something. You have no clue what they're doing. Right? It's just an outline of something. You don't realize what it is. Then the painter starts filling in the, the paints and the colors and the picture. All of a sudden it comes to life. You see what's going on over here. So in that sense, the highest point of Torah, the mind, the Yama Chochma, is this level of the ultimate Gili Torah Atzma. And Ulamata, Ushagil Himachachma, Ulamata, comes from that very high Yud, then it travels down into the level, the lower Yud. We're going to see this difference between the high Yud and the level, level, lower Yud play a role soon. Now what's the lower waters? This Mayim, this Yud is Then the waters travel down. So now you understand the way Torah relates to me. Now it's Torah the way it relates to us in this physical world. Doing, putting on tefillin, lighting Shabbos candles, you know, making brachas, all the aspects of the physical world being involved in Torah, right? That's what it is. But what is it at the end of the day? What is it over here? We're dealing with a very physical application of the Mayim, but it's still defined as Malchus it's still defined as God's Malchus, meaning we're still dealing with God's Yud, higher world, upper world, the highest level of water of Torah. It's It's still dealing with God's essence itself. And that means even when I think of Torah now and I'm learning Torah, I'm like, you think Moshe Rabbeinu is talking about this on the higher realms? The answer is yes, but maybe in a different application, but the same thing. It's the same purity. Now this is a very fundamental point because what basically it's describing is that we're drawing down the very purity of the essence of God through Torah. We're not dealing with a watered down or a changed version. We're dealing with the very same thing. Although the application is different, it's dealing with the very, very same thing. In general, this is the Ramach Mitzvah Generally, you can focus on that the 248 positive mitzvahs are like water, which is kindness. Because through them, you bring down and draw down God. What does chesed represent? Chesed represents, again, again, closeness. Closeness means you give and take. Close means you're able to receive. That's what closeness means. When you feel close to someone, because usually there's a relationship. There's actually a study that more parents, the parents that actually spent more time giving to their children, have a much deeper, close relationship to their children. I mean, it sounds obvious, but the point is, is that you could have a, a a father that had a child and doesn't never had anything to do with the child. There's a natural love, but it's, the love was never brought out, was never experienced. There was never the closeness. And that's the idea here. When you feel the closeness, the closeness that we have through learning Torah of God, that's the, where we get close, so to speak. That's where we have this idea of drawing down and bringing and receiving more of God's essence into the world. Kemaimer, as we say, when we make a, do a mitzvah, we make a bracha, we may say that God made us, sanctified us with his mitzvah. So the obvious question is, why say, Say, Baruch Atah Hashem, God blesses you, God, Asher Oisem Mitzvah or Asher Anachnu Oisem Mitzvah that we're doing it. So why Kiddishanu? What does the word Kiddishanu mean? 
So we say, because Kiddushan represents God's lofty state, Kiddush Elyon. We're not just, when we do a mitzvah, you know, a lot of times, let's say again, in the non-Hasidic world, they say, you do a mitzvah, okay, so you, mitzvahs are, what's the purpose of mitzvahs? So in the earlier philosophers, they said mitzvahs, they bring a medrash, mitzvahs, letzarch ben sabrius. Mitzvahs are there to just make us do, be better people. That's what the medrash says, to make us better people. God wanted to perfect us, so he gave us mitzvahs. Then you speak to the, the, the more, let's say, even the Kabbalistic amongst us who discuss the idea of mitzvahs to explain. You, you want to trigger certain relationships of certain flows of God, so you do certain mitzvahs, and each mitzvah has its own connection. In Hasidus it says, he goes straight to the essence. A mitzvah means you're tapping into the Kodesh Elyon, you're tapping into the essence and the purity of God, the way God is on the highest levels. The level of God that's completely Kodesh, completely holy and separated. That that lofty level, when we perform a mitzvah, it should be revealed down here in this world. And, and that's what you're accomplishing through this process. So that's the Mayim, that's the level of the Shuv. What Shuv? Just to maybe highlight this point. So we're talking about doing mitzvahs as shuv, right? So we'll see a little bit more of what shuv is in a moment. But the idea of shuv is, let's say, for example, in a relationship, right? So we said before, let's say the husband and the wife are in a relationship. So I could talk from the husband's side. I don't know. I'm sure it's true from the wife's side. But, you know, there's times I want to do my own thing. I'm not interested in spending time uh, taking care of my children necessarily, right? I want to do my own thing. I want to learn, let's say. I don't know. I want to do my own thing in my mind, let's say, right? So that's a rotsi. I have a desire to do something. But then I realize that's, my, that's, not, that's not my purpose here. My purpose here is to take care of my children, is to help them and guide them and direct them and give them the love and the care. And the same thing is for my wife, to make sure that, there's, that that's been given. Now, at that stage, I think I'm, 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 so to speak, removing myself from something else. I'm not connecting to, to myself. Why would I want to learn? So I want to connect to my deeper self, right? I want to feel a deeper self-awareness, let's say. But the truth is, in the shuv, I'm actually drawing myself more closer to myself than if I would be running away, so to speak, in my learning. Because in the physical action, in the world of dealing with this element of, of being in this state, of, of dealing, in this case, with the relationship, I'm actually drawing a deeper self. I'm connecting to a deeper self. And that's the idea of shuv. Shuv draws down a higher level than you would. In the Ratsu, it's, just, it's like a lot of times you get excited. And what happens after excitement? Nothing, right? You got excited, big deal. You, you made a great resolution. You're, 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 you're you know, I don't know, uh, I'm going to go to the gym every day. The, the excitement is over, and that's it. You never went to the gym after that, right? That idea, shuv is where the reality kicks in. It's where the real, where the real working, where the real where um, the real drawing down of yourself, or in this case, God, is happening in this world. And that's the idea, that you take the Kaddish and move the Lishar and The Chol Hamshocha, he bechinas chesed And this whole drawing down is, again, from this level of love, of closeness, of, of chesed and umayim. Okay, so now that's the level of shuv of Torah, the maim of Torah. But we said there's also the counter element of the Ratzoi. So he says, There's also Torah, the way Torah is a fire. It's a, it's a level of gvura. Of God said it has to be this way and not another way. of God's commandments only this way. If it's higher than twenty amas you can't use that sukkah. You're not allowed to sit in it. Likewise, if you're wearing tzitzis, you have to have the strings of the tzitzis complete. It can't be too short. All mitzvahs likewise should portray the came hein hein bechinas gvuris with some sum melashim kulim chasadim gamkin. So they're taki gvuris, they're limitations, but they're also come from God's chesed. Now, what is the Rebbe pointing out? He's pointing out that we have again this duality, this this two opposite forces in there. 
Mayim, what's Mayim? Mayim is this idea of drawing down, of bringing closeness, of going to the highest levels and bringing down the same high levels. So what does that sound like? That sounds like the ultimate level, the ultimate experience. But then Simpson, so here it's a flip of what we were thought, think before. It's the inverse of what we said before. Here, Ratsai, here, Ratsai is not this level of, so to speak, of ultimate expansion, of just running out and just trying to experience God. Here, the Ratsai is saying that there's a Gevur element. There's a passion. There's a fire. Fire represents this idea. I'm sorry. Not that, not, not ish, not fire as a passion, but ish, fire as a sense of Gevur. What does Gevur represent? Gevur represents at the point of being restricted, limited. Like, for example, a, a real intellectual person is very much limited, you know, let's say you have certain people that they, 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 they have to have everything figured out. Everything has to be worked out to a T, right? Everything has to be literally worked out exactly the way it is. Every detail has to be, and precisely this way and not another way, it has to make sense and all these details. So it sounds a little bit counter to what we said before. But in this sense, the Rotsi represents the idea, or the Eish, not necessarily the Rotsi, the Eish represents this idea of doing something. So let's say in our religious experience, let's just make, give a practical example. In our religious experience, a lot of times what happens is, is that we just want to feel close to God, right? So we're not interested in taking care of the details, right? I'm not interested in focusing on the details. Or let's say you're learning something. A lot of times you're learning, let's say I have this with my students, you know, they just want to get the general idea. When you get, want to get the general idea, you're missing out the details, you don't really get the idea at all, right? So in terms of our religious experience also, if we just want to do what we want to do to feel good that we're connecting to God without doing what God tells us to do and the way God wants us to do it, then we're not really connecting to God, right? So the shuv part is allowing the flow to come down, doing God's will, but at the same time, it has to be with a rotz, with an ish part. The mayim is the will coming down, but then it has to be done through an ish, which is exactly, precisely this way, gevura. It has to be done not through chesed, not just all out, but precisely like this and not like this. You can't experience Pesach during Sukkot. You can't experience Shavuos during Purim. There is a precise time and place for everything and measurement of how it has to be. And if it's not done that way, it ain't going to work. However excited you are, however much you want to draw it down, however much you want to experience, it has to be done this way and not another way. And this is the counter, the dual elements within an experience of religion or the experience of Judaism is that on the one hand, there's just tremendous flow. But then it seems to be a very limited flow because it can't just be all at once. It has to be limited to this and not that, right? Right now, so for example, a person, let's say, is very excited. They love sukkahs. They feel the closest to God to sukkahs. So they're going to build the sukkah now and sit outside in the sukkah right now. Do you think they're doing anything? They're not doing anything. In fact, you may be in violation of Baal Tosif. I'm not necessarily saying that's the case. Perhaps. Or at least the day after sukkahs, if you're going to sit in the sukkah and you want to experience sukkahs, because you, you're doing actually the wrong thing, not the good thing. So in other words, you want to feel this ultimate flow, but you also have to realize the ultimate flow is there's the limitations still that come with it. There's a time and a place for everything. And that's the Ratzi Vishuv element, so to speak, the Eishu Maim element that we have in Torah itself. Hare Nimsa, so it comes out. Torah likewise has these two elements. It has Eishu Maim, Gashmis within the physical actions. So through us, working through Torah within these dual elements of we then create an arousal from God above, meaning we arouse God by us getting it right. Let's say, for example, you know, today in the modern lingo, arousal usually refers to you know, a, a, a sexual type of context. And, and, it's, and it's true, spiritually as well. 
We arouse God. What does that mean, we arouse God? So just like with an intimate relationship, the arousal stimulates a certain flow, a certain energy, a certain giving over, allowing for pure connection, right? When two people, when a husband and wife get aroused by each other, it creates a tremendous relationship, a much deeper intimate relationship, right? That's the idea of arousal. So likewise, the Shusha Lasata, we're so to speak arousing God. God is getting excited by us, by he seeing us doing our avoid of Eshu Mayim, by us doing these two dual elements together, that stimulates by him an arousal, and to give us likewise the same effect that Avram Avinu was doing of reaching higher levels of godliness, and this allows there to be this tremendous flow of the arousal from above, from the arousal of below, where did we get this about? Where did we get this power to, to, to accomplish this? Now you have to get to a very more fundamental question. God getting aroused by me? <laughs> Who am I to get, get, get God aroused, right? Again, if we, we want to use a very physical, perhaps, as we say in Yiddish, Jewish, a grub a moshel, a more coarse moshel, right? You know, a, a human being, a healthy human being gets aroused by certain, you know, let's say a male gets aroused by a, a, a female, right? So that's Be'erach, there's some arousal over there, right? But a healthy human being is not going to get aroused by an animal. <laughs> there's no Erech there. I know there is such a concept, but I'm saying, generally speaking, you don't get aroused by that. That's not an, something to get aroused about. So the law of those, God forbid not to compare the two, but the idea is we as creations to be get God aroused doesn't make any sense. We should arouse God that now he should get aroused, that he should communicate with us, so to speak, and generate this left, lofty connection of, of Ratzi Veshuvah, of Holuch Venoisa, that we could connect him on this ultimate level. How do we arouse God? That's what he says. This energy, this power to to arouse God Himself. This was given over to Jews, which is a point that the Rebbe emphasized. Given to Jews at Matan Torah. This is the concept of giving the Torah. In other words, God now gave one of the famous ideas that's expressed in Chazidus. God brought about an ability that in the physical action, in the physical world, and this is again a point we spoke about before, this idea of connecting to God on its purest level, is that in the physical world you actually experience God and bring down God in a much deeper level. That's something that only happened in Matan Torah. Before Matan Torah, it was impossible to relate to the physical world as anything spiritual. There was the physical world and the spiritual world, and that's it. Then Taka, if you would say, truth please spoke, please saying, if you would say that there is a concept of God or God of religion, it would be a spiritual, a spiritual thing. But that all changed by Matan Torah, that religion is not spiritual. Religion is actually very physical. And our job, as we know, is to change the physical. But that was something that was changed then. That means that God, so to speak, gave the power within the physical world to elicit a arousal of God himself, this concept of being able to take a physical item like an estrog and, and shake it on, 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 on Sukkot, or eating matzah and arouse God, so to speak, with a physical, or my physical body saying the words of Torah. This idea of a physical arousal, so to speak, this concept, and perhaps maybe that's why in our physical world we actually get aroused by physical things, maybe. Obviously, everything is connected to a spiritual place, so the, the, so to speak, the science or the psychology of physical, of arousal, you know, people getting connected to people's a physical connection, right? At the end of the day, the arousal is usually physical. However much a person may be connected to a person on a deeper emotional level, psychological level, but the arousal usually comes from a physical part. This seems to be very much 
connected to this idea, maybe, I don't know, I have to think about that idea maybe more. But the idea is, is that spiritual, this idea of the physical world becoming an arousal for God is something that God brought about in through Matan Torah, which then what happened was is that now the physical thing could be called a mitzvah. Before Matan Torah, there was no such thing as a physical thing being a mitzvah. Right? Avraham Avinu didn't take an asterisk and do a mitzvah with it. He did it in his spiritual realm, so he did some sort of idea of an esrog. But now there's a concept of taking an esrog, and it's called a mitzvah. You're wearing, you're wearing, um, you're wearing leather straps, it's called tefillin, it's called a mitzvah. Or, 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 or you're lighting Shabbos candles, you're doing a physical action, but it's a mitzvah. That's the change of Matan Torah. Liyos Nikra should be called Shei Mitzvah Advarim Gashmiyim. Liyos Bem Koyach Zev. That through this power there could be a revelation of God's infinite light. Fine. So now all this is explained what the purpose of Matan Torah is and how Matan Torah works within the physical world. So now we understand what did Matan Torah accomplish. Matan Torah accomplished that now we could connect to God like Avraham Avinu and we could bring down God's Kodesh Elyon, the highest levels of Godliness through the physical world, through our physical actions, because we mimic, so to speak, the Ratzai Vishuv concept, because we have in Torah both Ratzai and Shuv, Eishem Mayim. And therefore, we can now bring about a similar effect. So what's the obvious question now? If we're bringing about the same thing as Avraham Avinu, so Yashikoyach. So then what was the purpose of what Avraham Avinu did, and what's the purpose of what, what we're doing? That's what the Rebbe says. So we have to understand. Since through Torah itself, you could accomplish this thing of traveling up and down, meaning you could reach this ultimate lofty level of connection. So why didn't Avraham Taki get the Torah? Meaning, why couldn't he have this element? What did he need? His personal service of Ratzav Yishuv? Let him just do the Torah the way it is in the physical world already. It's like, it's what we say in Hebrew, in Aramaic, actually, if the Torah is such a lofty level of connection, so that Avraham Avinu should have had it. And if Avraham Avinu is doing just fine with his level of Ratzav Yishuv, then why are we getting the physical, right? When we're losing out. So something over here is not, doesn't make sense. So now Lahavin calls us, and now we have to understand something very important. So now, just to get the, br the brief outline of what's going on, of what the next part, which is the main crucial, the, the, towards the end of the Maim already, what the Rebbe here is going to say, the Rebbe here is going to explain the, the uniqueness of number one, physical action, the dangers of physicality, and why precisely because of that we needed Mitzrayim. In other words, the obvious question is, why did we have to go through Mitzrayim to receive the Torah, right? Mitzrayim was a very big hardship. It was a, it was a, it was a darkness, it was painful, it was, it was murderous, it was treachery. Why did we need Mitzrayim and only afterwards could we go out of Mitzrayim and receive the Torah? Why was that necessary? And the, the Rebbe is going to explain that's precisely only through our Mitzrayim could we enable the physicality to function as a vessel for God, which is something that Avraham Avinu never had. He never had the ability to connect to the physical world, godliness in the physical world, because he never went to a Mitzrayim. And what's the significance of the Mitzrayim? But first, we're going to have to feel, see the dangers of physicality. In other words, we're very much aware of the dangers of physicality. Take, for example, our cell phones. It's very easy to click something and get into a whole dangerous world with our cell phones, right? The, the example the Rebbe is going to give here is not about a cell phone, obviously, but it's about food, right? But we could relate to the idea of a cell phone. Now, a cell phone could be a great plus. You could have shiurim on a cell phone. You could listen to shiurim. You could call people up. You could have relationships with people in a healthy way. You could encourage people to do Torah mitzvahs. You could watch videos that are inspirational for Judaism and all that. You could do a lot of good, but it also has a lot of bad. It has a lot of dangers in it, right? And that's the famous question. When do you step away? When, when do you need to be 
Um, when do you need to restrain yourself? Right? There's an importance to restrain yourself from certain physical things because they can be too dangerous for you. This is another question that's addressed in Hasidus. On the one hand, we know that there's a concept of making a nether. A nether is a refrain. Refraining from wine is the famous one, a nether. But there's a refrain from anything that you feel is too, too dangerous, perhaps, or something that you, you can't be in control of. On the other hand, there's also a concept of, of, of we know by the Eitz Hadas, the dangers, what was the problem? One of the, one of the things Chassidus points out at Eitz Hadas, what happened? God told Adam not to eat from the fruit of the Eitz Hadas, right? Don't eat from the fruit of the Eitz Hadas. That's what God commanded Adam to do. So, um, so what happened? Somehow the communication to Chava, so to speak, changed. So Chava meets the snake. The snake wanted to have something with Chava. So the snake tells Chava, oh, eat from this fruit. It's delicious. So what does Chava say? No, 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 no. God said I can't touch it. God never said he can't touch it. God said, don't eat it. The snake, knowing this, grabbed the opportunity and said, oh, really? Oh, no, 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 no. You see, you touch it, you'll be just fine. So he, he, was a good pers he persuaded her well. He was a good talker. He was a smooth talker, as they say. And he got her to touch it, and nothing happened. So she says, aha, so maybe this whole thing is baloney. Maybe this talking nothing wrong. Maybe this is all nonsense. My, my father, my, bro my husband, Adam, creates this whole religion and God and says, is it? So of baloney, and then she eats the fruit and wants to give Adam to eat. And then a God reveals himself and says, no, 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 you made a massive mistake. You added to what I said. I never said, don't touch it. I said, don't eat it. When you add to God's word and you decide to make more chumras, as we say, to make more restrictions, that's a problem. As the Gemara says, it's enough what, what God commanded you not to do. Don't add more. In fact, the Gemara says, if you make an edit to refrain from certain things, the Gemara says it's as if you built a bama. A bama is an external altar outside of the base of Middash, which is forbidden. And if you fulfill it, it's the, the, if you actually actualize your, your promise, you're neither not to do certain things or to do certain things that you're not supposed to, you actually are like brought a sacrifice. And it, so we have these dual elements, these, these contradictory things. On the one hand, we say a neder, the Mishnah says, is one of the greatest things. It helps you refrain yourself from doing bad things. But at the same time, we see that... God wants you to utilize the physical world. God wants you to harness the physical world only for his benefit, only for, his, for, his, for, his, for him. The Gemara says that God didn't create anything in this world for nothing. Every single element of this world has to be used. In fact, the Gemara says a very fascinating thing. The Gemara says that when we go plumaila, God is going to question us and judge us based if we used out the physical world the way we should. It says that if you had an opportunity to eat certain things and you didn't eat it, God is going to say you're going to be punished because you didn't have benefit from my physical world. So how do you reconcile these two things? So the Rebbe has a famous talk where he explains that it depends. If a person is in control and a person knows that they can harness this physical thing for a good thing, so then Adarabba, then on the contrary, your job, like Adam and Chav and Gan Eden, their job was to purify Gan Eden. Their job, they were pure people. They didn't have any bad. They were in control of it. They could harness everything for the right thing, except for eating from the Yitzhadas. Everything else they had an opportunity to harness, to utilize for God. They messed up on that. They thought that they were supposed to restrict and not do certain things. And that's a mistake. That's a danger, right? However, when you know that you're actually in a place that you're not in control, let's say a, year, a number of years ago, so when a student asked me, you know, they're a musician, they want to go to a place, a, a rave, and they wanted to play in the rave, at the rave. And they said, you know, they know people there, that they know me, that maybe they'll be inspired, maybe they could, he can encourage them to, you know, inspire them to become close to Judaism, whatever it is. And the question for him was, is it good for him to go, right? And this is a question. In our job to deal with the physical world is the dangers of getting too caught up in the physical world and of actually taking us down versus taking us up. And this is the question of the Nadarim issue, the question of doing it to refrain enough, like, for example, an alcoholic. A person who's an alcoholic knows that they can't deal with alcohol. 
So whether after enough time they could start taking a little bit of alcohol, you'll ask the experts. But the point is, you make a nether not to touch alcohol, because you can't, you can't deal with it. You realize you're not in control, but a person who has a healthy relationship with alcohol, so it's a good thing, you make a lachayim, you get excited, you can have a fabrengid, whatever it is, it actually is something to be utilized for God. So this idea of the physical world, the danger, so to speak, is what the Rebbe now goes on to explain. And therefore, we ask, why didn't Avraham Avinu do the Torah in the physical sense, if it's this ultimate Ratzav Yishuv, the reason is because he wasn't purified enough to be able to deal with the physical world. Believe it or not, Avram Avinu, the father of Judaism, the father of, 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 of even mankind, we say, Abba Goyim, wasn't, so to speak, able in his, in his physical sense to be able to deal with the physical world in the sense of able to, not that maybe he was at fault, but, or he had something missing, but the world wasn't ready. And only through the, the Mitzrayim, the process of the Korhar Barzals, we'll see the, the, the smelting pot of Egypt, the, the refining that we went through in Egypt, did we have the ability to transform the world. Yeah, so the truth is, is that right, there is a concept that every, that Avraham Avinu also had a Yisurim, right? He did have some sort of a Mitzrayim. The concept though is, is that in this ultimate sense of Mitzrayim, he didn't experience. And the world didn't experience it. But you're right, there is a concept of Mitzrayim that every single one of the Ovis had, Avram had, Yitzchak had, right, Yaakov had, they all had a Mitzrayim. But the, the monumental aspect of Mitzrayim was not effectuated by them. So that's the basic point that we're going to see here now. So let's see this inside. Zest, so to understand why the Torah had to be given in the physical world and not to Avram Avinu. So we're holding the second uh, paragraph on the next page, on the middle page. So to understand this <clears throat> with a good explanation of why is it that we have this great ability through physical mitzvahs to bring down the light of God into this world, all mitzvahs are made, are done through the animate, the, 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 the inanimate, the things that don't move, the semech, the things that grow in the chai and the live animals. Kigoyim, for example, a carbon mincha. One of the carbonis is to bring flowers, soilus, mitzemech. So that comes from the things that grow, the carbonis behem. And then you have a, bringing a carbon, a sacrifice from an animal, which is from the category of chai. The tefillin, likewise, the tefillin that we wear, shall cloth is made of uh, cloth. Cloth is high, the skin. Or a behemah comes from the heart of an animal. So we know when every mitzvah, almost all mitzvahs, except for a few, like mitzvahs of loving God and, and learning Torah, are dealing with the physical world. Reuben Kekulam, the majority, if not all of them, are doing with the physical world. That's what mitzvahs are. But again, here's the problem. What's the problem? The problem is God made it that the physical world is dominated by the worlds of Klippus Noiga. Everything in the physical world has a sort of shell over it. What does shell mean? Shell means there's a certain concealment. It's not purely, oh, this is something used for God. In other words, I don't see my cell phone as automatically, oh yeah, this is only for God. Right? If I would be, I would never have a problem with my cell phone. It would be totally fine. Right? But everything in the physical world is, is overwhelmed by this, this klipasnoige element. It's under the control over here of a klipasnoige. It's under this shell, so to speak. It's under this, 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 this concealment, this unawareness of godliness in this. We live in a physical world today. We don't necessarily feel God. We don't feel close to God. We don't necessarily connect it to God. And the reason is because we're under this, this control of the klipa, the klipa snoiga, this, this, this sort of good-bad klipa that, so to speak, prevents us from fully experiencing godliness in this world. So now, if you're dealing with the klipa snoiga element, and that's where mitzvahs come from, mitzvahs are being utilizing the physical world, so what's the problems? 
So the problem is like this. He says, how is it possible that you are Karbanistafka Hashem? How is it possible that God wants from a physical thing? Again, we asked the question before. How does I remember speaking to someone recently uh, a while ago, they wanted to know what's Chabad's opinion about cell phones. So in the non-Chabad world, they've made a very big ban about not having cell phones. So they have a kosher phone, and they have a this phone, and they have whatever. So they want to know if Chabad agrees with this or not. So I don't know necessarily what the policies of Chabad. I know in yeshivas, let's say, they try to say that Bochum shouldn't have a cell phone or a smartphone, whatever. Today you have different levels of smartphones. Um, but uh, so I was just bringing out a point. I said one of the focuses, the whole idea of Chabad Chassidus is to focus on everything in this physical world could be utilized for God. That's the ultimate objective of everything in the physical world to be utilized for God. If that's the case, then how could you ban something? How could you come out? Again, that's what we said before. The Gemara says, you can't ban it. You can't. But at the same time, you also have to realize it's dangerous. Because of the fact that it, you don't see it purely as something that can be harnessed and utilized for God, because of the Klippas Noiga, so his response was, you mean God wants me to use my cell phone for godliness? He doesn't want it for godliness. It's a physical thing that it could lead to so much destruction, right? Why would God want it? That's precisely the question here. You mean God wants the physical animal to be brought up as a carbon to sacrifice to him? So then you have the PETA type of people, right? The people that are going to say the environmentalists and the taking an animal and killing it for your God and all those other questions. But that's not necessarily what the Alter Rebbe is dealing with here. He's dealing with the more basic question. You would think, as we said, we started off saying a while ago, that we relate to religion as a spiritual thing. That's how we see Judaism. In fact, in non, in non, in, 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 let's say in the Christian world, Lahavdil, that's what their religion is. Religion is purely spiritual. They don't believe in the physical in the, at all. Judaism is the opposite. Judaism relates to religion as a physical thing. But the question is why? How? Not only that, what it says about a carbon is that it creates a reyach nichoyach. It creates this tremendous smelling of satisfaction to God which we'll analyze what that means in a minute, of nachas, what does nachas mean? But the question is, again, how is it possible? What does reyach mean? Reyach is a smell. What does smell do? Smell travels up. Let's say, for example, you uh, come into a room and you're like, it smells good, right? I'm not saying because of the in here, but I'm saying, let's say it is, let's say a, a nice smell of some perfume, right? It smells good. What does the reich do? The reich is an attractive power, as we spoke about before, about attraction, about arousals. It attracts. It's an attractive power. What does the attractive power do? It usually goes into your nostrils, and it makes you feel good if it's a good smell. <clears throat> if it's a bad smell, obviously, that could be something which is very dangerous. You know, it's, it's interesting that in halacha, you have this difference between a good smell and a bad smell. So first of all, every time you have a good smell, you have to make a bracha. And if it's a bad smell, you're not allowed to make a bracha. You're not allowed to make a bracha on, uh, on things which are not good. You're not allowed to make a bracha on something which is bad. The Mishnah says that you don't make a bracha on something which is bad. Medicine, if it doesn't taste good, you don't make a bracha. If it does taste good, you do make a bracha because you have some benefit from it. But there's another aspect, for example, in mitzvahs, and that is, is that something that smells good could be an attractive power. We know that's what the Gemara says. That it's the only thing that the spirit actually gets benefit from, not just the body. There's a question why we make a bracha if the body doesn't necessarily get some benefit. Whatever, I'm not getting into this concept halachically. But what's interesting is that if you're in a place where it smells bad, you're not allowed to daven. So the simple explanation is because how, how could you mention words of godliness, of holiness, in a, in a smelly place? But on a deeper or a different level, perhaps, you're not in a state of mind to daven properly if you're having smelling bad, sm smelling bad things in your, in your mouth, nose. 
you just it takes you away from a pure space of being able to focus on God because you're you're being affected by the bad smell versus if it is a good smell it actually stimulates a good positive reaction and a good thing so that's what reich is so it says that the smell of the carbon is so to speak bring out by God a certain pleasure and what does that do it brings a counterforce of nichoyach says the rebbe the nichoyach is as he continues so that's reich nichoyach loshen targum nachas the translation of nichoyach by the translation of the Aramaic Targumunklis is Nachas. You ever ask the question, what does Nachas mean? You say, oh, yes, you should have so much Nachas. What does it mean you should have so much Nachas? Nachas comes from the Reich Nichoyach, comes from the word Nichoyach. There's a Nachas that God has, a Ruach, Nachas Ruach. What's Nachas Ruach mean? So the word Nachas actually means to descend, it means to go down. It's a, a Choson. The word Choson, Choson is the same letters as Nachas. It's Ches, Sof, Nun. A chosan, the Gemara says, is nochus targa. When a man gets married, he goes down a level. So men like to joke and say, yeah, before we were married, we were half a man, and then after we were married, we were completely nothing. That we're nochus targa. But the real deep explanation of nochus, it's, nochus means to go down, means to relate, to have amshocha, to connect, to communicate, to bring down something, to be able to communicate with something. When you say you should have nachas, means that there should be some element of, let's say, your children that stir like a reach, a smell that makes you excited, that wants you to draw towards them, that you should feel good about something, they want something to draw. The same thing is when we do mitzvahs, we create a nachas ruach by God, a reach nechoyach. We create God, a smell that makes him want to come down and bring down a certain relationship and have a relationship with us. That's why it says by Karbonis, Ishai my fires l'reach nechoyach la'ashem, to create a stimulate this reach nechoyach. So the question is, how is it possible that a burning animal, right? First of all, the burning smell of an animal doesn't smell too great. But that's a different story, depending on how you cook it. But uh, the, the, how could that stimulate a reich nechoyach, that by God he should feel this nachas that wants to draw himself down to you? Pirishli is gili havaya to be a revelation of God. In the revealed world, to draw down the essence or the infinite energies of God into this world. It seems ridiculous. It seems like, how does that stimulate, right? It's like, for example, you know, you, again, we have a Marshall, you have a deep professor, a brilliant-minded person. And for him, he's always stimulated by, obviously, these deep mathematics or scientifics or other types of ideas, right? And all of a sudden, this child comes into the room and starts bounding about about some stupidities. And all of a sudden, this big professor gets so excited and aroused and stimulated by this guy by this child and starts communicating with him. You think it's ridiculous. What's the relationship here? You're the professor that's busy thinking about you know, set theory or other ideas, and all of a sudden you're dealing with stupidities, right? Seemingly. So that's the question. How could the simple smell of a carbon generate such flow from God? So the Rebbe continues, he says, So the Rebbe starts off by explaining a very famous concept brought in Hasidus and brought really in Kabbalah. The Arizal taught us that there's worlds above Atzilus. Before the Arizal, there was a certain limited knowledge of the world, so to speak, of the, the flow of God and the Seder Ishtashlus. The Arizal taught us that before the Seder Ishtashlus, there was the world of Toyu which we literally loosely translate as, as the world of chaos. What does the world of chaos mean? So the world of chaos means that there is a certain um, egoism. That's the truth. Chaos means egoism, that there's no, there's no blending of ideas together. There's no merging of a team. 
You know, so let's say for example, if, I don't know, in basketball, if you have one player that's just out the whole time to make, you know, to score 100 points, and they never pass the ball, even when they're in traffic, let's say, or they're trying, the, the team will probably lose. Because at the end of the day, it's, you need to work together with the team. But if you're just into yourself and trying to reach you know, numbers, you're not going to be successful. That's the difference between Toyo and Tikkun. So Toyo is the world's before Tikkun, meaning before the world of Atsilus is all, is all Toyo. Then there's Atsilus, which is Tikkun. What's Tikkun? Tikkun is, is blending together things. It's communicating. It's, it's networking, let's say. It's teammates. Where you're not interested in yourself. You're interested in the focus of the goal of the mission. Toyo is not interested in the focus of the goal of the mission, right? That's why there was Shvira Sakelo. Eventually that energy just breaks because egoism eventually leads to self-destruction because you'll never succeed in being yourself, what you want. And you just break in a very deep, a very basic psychological lesson about Toyo. So Toyo sounds exciting. It's energies flying and electrons flying around, but they're not communicating with anything, right? If you just have pure electrons running around and they're not communicating, you don't build anything. You have no reality. That's Toyo. So the, the, where do we know this Toyo from? Where did the Arizal teach us Toyo? Because there's a passage of Parshish by Yishlach that describes the kings that ruled in the cities of Edom, which is the cities of Esav, before any king ruled in the cities of Yaakov. Meaning Esav had certain powers that preceded Yaakov's powers. Meaning before there was a king, a Jewish king, which was Sholem, the first Jewish king, there was already a whole list of non-Jew, of Esav's descendants being king. So what's this concept? So the Arizal explained that this concept represents the idea of the worlds of Toyo, the klipa, so to speak, the energies, the pure energies. Why was it that Esav had such, such an ability to rule first, so to speak, is because he represents the purity of Toyo, and in the purity of Toyo, it reigns before, it comes before Tikkun, it comes before Yaakov. And that's Lifnei Melech Molach, that before a king ruled by Yisrael, there was a king, so to speak, in Esav, there was already a world of Toyo. That's where the Arizal was able to teach us. In other words, the Arizal knew this because he was in tune with godliness in a higher, very spiritual level. He was able to communicate it to us through the words of the Torah, but not that he saw the Torah and then he says, oh, that's what it means. It's not like a pshat. You know, sometimes you learn a pshat, you learn a pasuk, and you have a pshat, and you make your pshat fit into the pasuk. That's not what the Arizal did. The Arizal saw with his great ruach HaKodesh and nevuah that there are such levels of toyu, or maybe not Ruch HaKodesh and actually. That's not true. It's deep wisdom, actually. That's the way the author explains his Chochmah. He was able to penetrate into the worlds of Toyu. So he was able to understand it. And then he says, you want to know where you see the Torah idea of Toyu? It's Lefnei Melech Malach. But anyway, what's the point that he's saying over here? He's saying is that the truth is, where does all the physicality come from? Where does the apple, the pear, the, 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 the table, the electrons, all these things come from? They come from the level of Toyu. The reason why they're so chaotic an animal. An animal is just wild. There's no taming. I mean, there are certain animals that are more tame, which is another whole discussion. But nature is wild. We call it wild nature. There's a reason why nature is called wild, because it's Toyu. If, if you let the city abandoned, grass will just grow all over. It will become a jungle again, or, or maybe not here, because it's a desert. Wherever it is, you understand the idea that it's, 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 it's wild. It doesn't have a structure, a designation, a focus. It doesn't build anything by itself. You bring a billion animals together, they're not going to create the city of Rome. They're not going to create the city of New York. You need a tikkun process to harness energies to build it, right? Animals were living here for thousands of years. They never discovered electricity yet. The idea is that's the world of Toyo. They don't work together. They don't harmonize together. There is no energy brought out from them. But they really contain deep levels of energy. Human beings through the world of tikkun have the ability to harness these realms of, of energy, harness them together to bring out a purity, a, 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 a real, a, a bring out their essence. 
So what is the Alter Rebbe here saying? The Alter Rebbe is saying is man, Tikkun comes much, much later. Really on, so to speak, the hierarchy, we're much lower than the animal. We're much lower than the physical world, than the physicality of the world. We start out at a point of Tikkun, not of Toyu. And that's what he says over here. The reason why the spiritual, what's the real source of the physical world is Lefnei Melech Molach. as Davar Melech described, Ochor Vekedem Tsaratoni. From the back and from the front, you created me. What does that mean? So the Gemara says, Ochor the Gemara explains David HaMelech's description of himself as saying, man, God, you created man as a first and as a last. That means on the one hand, man is seen as the highest of all creations, right? We're the more intelligent, we create things, we develop things. At the same time, we were creating the last. We were created on the sixth day of creation. And the reason is, is that the Gemara says to say that if a man thinks he could say, oh, I'm such a great person, you should know that the little small mosquito, which has no function in this world besides sucking out your blood, was created before you. And that's the idea that the physical world, the physical elements of David Mechai come way before the man. Um, the, the statement of God to say that the world should be created of the earth, came before man. And therefore, he says that's the reason why when a person eats food, it gives the person life. You ask a basic question why should man need the water, which is a diamond? or the, the challenge, which is potatoes and meat, if there's meat in there, I don't know. Why does the man need the daim smeichai to live? It's a much lower class level. I should be able to live on my own energy, so to speak, right? I shouldn't have to live off of off, off lower quality things. So he says, no, because Michael, because these things actually are rooted in Toyu, they come from a much higher level. You extract through eating it. You, you suck out, so to speak, just like we know physically, bio, biologically, when you eat food, it breaks down in the body and the food uh, 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 goes through a process of, of um, fermenting and all that and it takes out the, 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 the enzymes, take out the, the different proteins and everything that you need in the body and the sugars. That idea is the pihavai that allows us to be sustained. That's the inner deeper, so to speak, I, uh, spiritually, the inner deeper element of the food. That God made it, that every man lives off the word of God. What's the word of God? These levels of toyu. Nevertheless, so now you can ask a question. One second. When God created man, he also was the word of God. Man was also a creation of God, so man should be sustained by his own, by his own energy. Like, why can't he survive on his own energy? That the reason is because the word of God, the creation of the energy that's in the food is much higher. Okay, this is more of like a tangent. It's a side point, but the point is proving that the physical world actually resides, has within it a much deeper element, a much deeper energy that's way beyond the human in this world. Okay, so now it sounds great. So now the physical world, now we can understand somewhat why using the physical world. It's normal like the little child talking to the professor. This little child is actually a genius himself, right? This little child is a genius. You couldn't understand him, only the professor could understand him. So you thought he was speaking gibberish. You thought he was making no sense. But really, this child is a big genius and therefore this professor loves talking to him. That's what it sounds like now. If that's true, so great. Now we understand why we need the physical world because without the physical world, we have very lack of communication over there. Here we have a tool. We can get this child into the professor, so to speak, and that's going to create a stimulation. We want the t professor to talk to us, to acknowledge us. We need the child to do it, so to speak. That's the way it looks like, right? We need the child to do it for us because he's a genius that can communicate to these ideas to the professor. So then what's the problem over here? So it says, ah, however, this is what we mentioned before. There's a downside. Im kolzeh, 
Despite all this, the food descended, fell from the highest levels of Shvir into the broken vessels. It descended into the world of Klippa. So now the problem is it's concealed. This energy is not revealed. So let's say the child, again, I don't know if it's a good analogy, I'm just using it, but it may be a bad analogy. But let's say the child, the child, let's say, is a genius, right? But no one recognizes his genius, no one understands him, because he's a small little kid. He can barely talk, he can barely articulate his words, right? You see a lot of times real brilliant people in general, even if they're not children, they sound like children because they can't articulate their words. You don't see them, you think they're stupid, you think they're foolish, right? So, so that's the klipa. The klipa blinds you to the reality of what these things are, who they are, what they're all about. So what happens over here is that the Shiras HaKalim created that there should be now a darkening, so to speak, of these of the holy sparks. And therefore, therefore the food actually becomes very, the, 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 therefore the person who eats food becomes very physical. They become very physical. And it makes a person very physical. When we eat food, whether we like it or not, however godly and whatever godly intentions we have, we know in Tani it says you should eat food only l'shem shemaim. That every time you eat food, you should only think that you're using this food in order to serve God. That you could come to a shir for three, four hours to learn chassidus, right? So you're eating the chalant, you're eating the crackers, whatever it is, just to be able to, to stay up to learn a shir. That's l'shem shemaim. But whether we like it or not, the very fact that we're eating, we're still making our physical bodies more physical. We're still attaching ourselves to the physical world. And the Altarebbe says in Tanya, the more we eat, the more the physical world, the more the Nefshe Bahamas gets food. You're, not, you're actually fueling him even more. You're trying to destroy him, but you're actually fueling him just by eating. Right? There's a danger here. I'm not saying not to eat. I'm saying that's what he's pointing out over here. He says, Vafilu HaTzadik. He says, even the highest lofty levels of a Tzadik, as it says that a Tzadik eats only to satisfy his soul, which Hasidus explains, it doesn't mean he just eats the bare minimum to survive. He eats, and whatever he eats, it's like when we eat on Shabbos. When we eat on Shabbos, there's no klipa attached to it. It's pure holiness. You know, they have this thing, Shabbos calories don't count. Well, it's not true, you probably gain more weight on Shabbos than the rest of the week. But the idea is, is that they're holy, they don't have any klipa attached to them, right? And at Tzadik, whenever he eats, he has no real klipa attached to them, seemingly, because he's only But even at Tzadik, even he is still going to come physical from the physical from the physical food. As is explained, this idea is explained at length elsewhere. And it's probably better for a Tzadik not to eat at all, if that's the case. It's probably better for us not to eat because of the dangers, as we said before, of where the food could lead us. The fact that the food could bring about this physicality, this physicalizing of ourselves, to the point that we become, like we said about the cell phone, the dangers of the cell phone is you could use it for very holy things, but once you click one button, right? It's like I tell, I tell students, I tell other people, you know, you think it's safe. You're just going on to go to, 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 to your email. And what comes up the moment you click for your email? Some picture, right? Of a, of a non-dressed properly uh, woman or boy, whatever it is. It's, it's all out there. In other words, you can't even think you're doing something good without there being something perhaps dangerous with it. So technically food also, however much you have great intentions, you're still dealing with the physical world. And then the Alter Rebbe says a fascinating thing. He says, he says, that's why Moshe Rabbeinu, when he was on Har Sinai for 40 days, he didn't eat. Why didn't he eat? What was wrong with food? Why couldn't he eat? He says he didn't eat because he knew the dangers of food. If he would eat, he may not have been able to transmit the Torah. He says, 
Hagam shemalosi gevoyim ha'oid. Even though Moshe Rabbeinu's levels were so high, you think Moshe would have fallen to the levels of being physicalized, so to speak, by the food? This is a very important lesson to realize. If we think we're in control, that, oh, you know, like people who are addicted and they say, oh, we're not addicted, we could stop whenever we want, you know? You think that you're above the physical world, that you could really just change it without it changing you. Realize, Moshe Rabbeinu was very conscious that even in his highest loftiest levels, he knew the physicality, the physical food could affect him as loyachal. And not only didn't he eat regular food, he didn't even eat the mon, which is shenikra lechem abirim. It's called the food of the mighty, the food of the angels. Man, meaning the Pasuk until him says he didn't eat Moshe. He didn't even want to eat the food of the angels. It says that why was the mon given to the generation of the of the Midvar, because they received the Torah. It says, you give the food to the mid of the of the angels to the people who received the Torah. It seems like eating the man allows you, this is what is explained by the Mepharshim, the man was a spiritual type of food, it was a physical food, but it, it actually refined, it refined the mind, the mind to be able to think, to be able to connect to the spiritual meanings of the Torah. So the man was a very high lofty level of food, and yet despite that, it was still food. It's angel food. Angel food. <laughs> no babies, you have angel food. It's angel food. It's the food of the angels, but yet it's still dangerous. Because at the end of the day, it's still something physical. He says, Because what levels of Torah did he want to accomplish? He didn't want to just receive the Torah the way it is, so to speak, on the lower lands. He wanted to receive the Torah even higher than the levels of the angels. So there's a level of Torah that the angels are relating to. So for them, they could eat mon, and the mon actually helps them relate to their level of Torah. Moshe Rabbeinu wanted to get the level of Torah that's way beyond that. Moshe Rabbeinu wanted to get the levels of Torah the way Torah is beyond the angels. Meaning they wanted the Torah for themselves. So Moshe had to counter them by getting a part of Torah that's totally unrelated to them. For that, he couldn't eat. So what do you see from here? You see that physicality is very dangerous. To bring down Torah into this world, it seems like the physical world could be an obstruction, not a help. Yeah, whatever that means. I'm not sure what it means myself, but yeah, I mean, the angels don't eat, but whatever it means that they eat them on. Okay, so therefore, says the Rebbe, that's why the Torah wasn't able to be given in the days of Avram. Because in the days of Avram, the world was yet not refined. That you could able to draw down godliness into the physical world. In other words, the physical world was still too dangerous. The physicality of the world. That's why Moshe Rabbeinu couldn't eat food. If Moshe Rabbeinu, after he came down from Mount Sinai, after he already got the Torah, and the Torah already broke the, I'm sorry, after Matan Torah, the world was able to handle, the physical world was able to be handle godliness, then he could eat. But till that point, so does, okay, I'm being sarcastic a bit, but the point is, is that the physical world till Matan Torah wasn't able to be penetrated by godliness. It was a very dangerous substance. It was a substance of weapons of mass destruction. It doesn't allow you to communicate to God. And that's why the Torah couldn't have been given in the days of Avraham Avinu, because it wasn't refined. The world wasn't refined to be able to draw down Ur and to the physical actions of Mitzvah, which were taken from Klippus And therefore, it wasn't able to draw down in it the infinite light of God to be called Mitzvah, as we spoke before, until after Yitzhiz Mitzrayim. What was the uniqueness of Yitzhiz Mitzrayim? Mitzrayim is the smelting pot. 
What does that mean? It says in the Pasuk, that you use this tremendous hot oven in order to refine silver and gold. You want to get the purity out of gold. You know, you, you extract gold and silver from mines. When you get it, it's rocks. That's what it is. An expert could tell you that there's gold here. You know, when you had the gold rush in, what is it, in 1845 here in California, people didn't know what they were looking for, right? So you may have had a lot of gold, but you may have not known you had any gold. And if you could have thought you had a lot of gold, then you had a lot of rocks. And even if you had all of that, even if you really had a lot of gold, it was just rocks. It didn't have, it wasn't refined. You had to then go to a refiner. You had to clean it out. How do you clean it out? By melting it. And through melting it, extracting all the psoilus, all the, phys, all the imperfections, now you have pure gold. Now you can have something that is beautiful. That's what Mitzrayim represented. I'm not sure what that word is. Maybe cut off over here. Agusugim. Mekesev. Again, this idea of refining the silver and the gold, that it shouldn't have any psalis. Top of next column, next page. The next column, this is exactly what the Mitzrayim did. What Mitzrayim did was a korhar barzal. It was a refining pit. They refined the Jews like they kushi hashibud through the, 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 the pains, literally, of the, of the slavery, with the bricks and the mortar, which is a whole different concept explained elsewhere in Hasidus, that why is the bricks representative of this idea of hard work? What do you do when you, we said before, what do you do when you heat up the, the metal? It, it refines it. So too, we became refined through the heat and the intensity. Now, there's a famous story, I don't know if it's famous, but there's a story of the, the previous Chabad Rebbe, he was in charge of the yeshiva of Tenchit Mimim when he was a very young age. When he was, I think, 17, his father, the fifth Chabad Rebbe, the Rebbe Rashab, put him in charge of the yeshiva. And he had a say in which students should be in the yeshiva and which students shouldn't be in the yeshiva. So there was one particular bacha that came into the yeshiva, and uh, Friedrich Rebbe didn't think that he was really someone that should be in the yeshiva. He felt that he was too coarse, too grub, as we say in Jewish, too physical, too much in the physical world. And the Friedrich Rebbe didn't want to accept him. So the Rebbe Rashab said to send him to the matzah bakery, to work in the matzah bakery. So he worked in the matzah bakery for six months. And after he came back, the Rebbe Rashab said, ah, now his, now his face radiates with Kedusha. In other words, now he was ready to work, to be, to, to be in yeshiva and tenkhwit mimim. He an edel upon him. He has a refined face. Well, what's the connection? This is a point here as well. When you have to deal with physical labor, it refines you. You know, let's say in today's millennial age, where people don't want to go to work, right? They just want to sit home, spend time on the computer, and you know, chat with friends, and smoke up, and do whatever it is, but not work. And what does it do to you? It destroys you. It makes you more and more physical. When you got to work, and you got to deal with the physical world by really working with it, that means you're refining yourself. You know what's good. You know what's bad. You know, it's like an expert. You know, today they say, you know, why a doctor is not as good as the past? Because doctors today rely on computers and machines the whole time. So they don't really know what the sickness is. They don't know what the problem is. They just know what the machine says. They repeat it, so to speak. I'm being overly sarcastic and, and, and general. But in the past, they had the doctors had to deal with each case. They had to learn it and study it and find real issues. So they could know what's real or problem not. You go to an older doctor, perhaps they could diagnose you one, two, three, and say what's going on, because they have the experience versus someone else not. Let's say about Shuva. Why is about Shuva greater than a Tzaddik? Because a Tzaddik never had any temptations in his, in his world. He never had any struggles. So for him, he doesn't know what this is dangerous or not. That's why Chahavah could sin, because she didn't know what's bad. She didn't know there's something wrong that's bad. You are about Shuva, you know what's bad. Right? And my mother, she should be well. So she, she always, as a child, when we were children, she, let, she told us she knew which songs were in Jewish. How did she know? 
because she was brought up in Australia, as I mentioned before. She was brought up in Australia, where her classmates, most of them weren't from, and they would sing non-Jewish songs. So she knew what was non-Jewish songs. So we were brought up with, let's say, you know, these, these Jewish singers that perhaps used non-Jewish songs to their, to, their metal, to their words. And she was able to say, that's a non-Jewish song. In other words, she had that experience of the Kor Harbarzal, obviously not in a, that sense, but the point is of being able to be refined, working with the physical world and refining it enables you to know what's good and what's bad. You're an expert now on what's good, what's bad. You know what to stay away from, you know what to, what's good, and how to harness it. And that's sort of what happened over here. When the Yidin were Mitzrayim, they had to break, so to speak. They had to break themselves and break the physical world to be able to know and realize and relate to the physical world for what it really is. You know, there's an idea, the Gemara says that if a person sees a beautiful woman and he gets attracted to a beautiful woman, he should envision a pit of, of, of a, a toilet full of, of, of uh, waste. What does that do? What that does is, is that it allows the person to realize that whatever you're getting excited about is really not to get excited about. In other words, and the more a person realizes that the things that they get excited about are just empty, vain, they realize there's no reason to get overwhelmed by that. So you're excited, someone sends you a text message, and therefore you have to spend the next half an hour chatting back and forth. You could say, you know what, I'll do it when I have time. And you lose that attachment to it with this instant push. So when you work with something and you realize the dangers and you realize the pluses and the minuses, then you become in control to allow you to be able to harness it. And that's sort of what the Korah Parcel did. The Yidin and Mitzrayim were attaching themselves purely to the physical world, but that itself enabled them and, and, and refined them. It gave them, you could say, a better knowledge, a better understanding of the physical world. But deeper yet, on a spiritual plane, it also refined the physical world that from there, it was able to create they can literally pull out the good from the bad the and it creates that the oven, the sin, the bad should be completely wasted. What does that mean? Completely wasted. He says, he's going to give a marshal for in a, in a second. But what's the idea? Ra has to use out its energy. Right? Let's say, for example, a, a battery. Once it uses out its energy, it's, it's, there's, no, there's no use anymore. Right? You know, let's say, for example, a child, a child is throwing a tantrum. So what's the best thing for a tantrum? So unless the child's gonna hurt themselves, let the child let out that energy, and once the energy is gone, there's no more tantrum. I'm not saying that's the best way to deal with tantrums. I mean, there's ways of consoling the child, giving the child encouragement, and making the child feel loved, and making the child understood, and allowing him to express or her express what's going on and why they feel the need to throw a tantrum, if you can do it, and all that. But on some level, if you feel that, you know, don't try to stop it, don't try to shush them, let them let out that energy, and once they let out their energy, now you have a person back to normal. The Ra, this energy that Klipa that has, is an energy that just has to be completely, has to use out its energy, so to speak. The Jews of Mitzrayim were able to waste up, so to speak, the energy of the Ra by extracting all the good, so now it just basically has nothing to itself anymore. There's no, there's no energy left to it. It's like it pulled the plug on it. It took out all the energy, all the electricity, so it's nothing left. He gives a mashal, like a aluka is a, a, is a blood sucker. A blood sucker, after it sucks out blood from a human being, it dies because it used it out its energy. Once it extracted all its energy, it, it used it out all its energy for one thing, there's no more energy anymore, it all of a sudden dies. It, it has no usage anymore. Klipa is defined in such a thing. Klipa represents something that it sucks, it, 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 it uses other energy, but once it dies, once it uses out all its energy, it dies out. That's why we find the Mitzrim, spiritually, this week's parasha, they drowned in the Yamsuf. Their energy was gone, there's no more Mitzrim anymore. There's no more Mitzrayim in that sense because they were all, their energy was sucked out. It says that the Gemara says, they emptied out Mitzrayim, so 
says they emptied out them from all the sparks of Kedusha. The Jews experienced what does it mean to refine something. That was the, so to speak, the, the testing ground and the refining ground for this experiment, so to speak, of the great experiment of refining the world happened in Mitzrayim. And that's what he says over here. When the Jews were refined, then the world became refined. Why the Jews? Because the Jews are the only people that could actually create this change. The world revolves around us. As the verse says, the Pasuk says that the world is placed in the hearts of man, of Jews. And through us, and therefore through us, we allowed that, we enabled that, brought about the ability that now a physical action could be called a mitzvah. That through them, and through them, in them, and through them, to and so forth, where you could draw down this high, lofty connection and lofty element of God, as we said, through eating the carbonus, that we could bring and sacrifice the, the animals and the flower which come from Tzemech, which creates this Nachas Ruach, this level of Nachas. Ah, you're going to ask, the Ova is also brought sacrifices. It says that Avram brought sacrifices, Yisach brought sacrifices. Okay, we'll leave that point on the side. They only brought Oilos, not Zvachim. So now says the author, with everything we just explained, we went on this whole journey so far, explaining that why do we give, what was the Chiddush Amanatari? The Chiddush Amanatari is that seemingly we can't do Ratzi Vishuv like Avraham Avinu did. So we have this mimic Matzah Vishuv that happens within Torah and Mitzvahs. But then we said if that's the case, so which one is better? Why, why Avraham Avinu didn't have the physical Ratzi Vishuv? And why do we have not the spiritual? So we went on to explain that Avraham Avinu could not do the physical Ratzi Vishuv because he didn't go through Mitzrayim. He did not go through this test run. He did not be able to refine, so to speak, the world and himself to be able to handle the physical world. He's like the tzaddik versus the baal He wasn't able to go through this process, and therefore for him, he couldn't fulfill the, this obligation. So that's what the Rebbe says. Through this we could all understand. The many questions that's asked, there's a famous questions he says, that's asked throughout all the literature in Judaism. How could it be that Yaakov married two sisters? We know the Torah prohibits a man from marrying two sisters. You're not allowed to marry two sisters. So for, before modern Torah, there was no Torah, there was no obligation, there was no prohibition. The problem is, is that we know that the, the Yaakov, the forefathers, kept the whole Torah before it was given also. If they kept the whole Torah before it was given, so then seemingly they should have also not married two sisters. Another question, Amram last week's parsha, Amram or two weeks ago's parsha, in parsha's boy, it says that Amram, the father of Boisha, married his, his aunt. That's also prohibited. After the Torah was given, you're not allowed to marry your aunt. So this is the famous question that's asked everywhere. So how could it be? How could it be that they did this? So now with everything we understand, it makes a lot of sense. Because the only way there would have been a problem is if there's actually something called a physical metzius of two, two sisters which have a halachic status that they're not allowed to be married. That means there's an implementation of the Torah in the physical world. When, you have an impl impl when the Torah is implemented in the physical world, that means the Torah could relate to the physical world. So then you have a prohibition, you're not allowed to eat uh, pork, you're not allowed to marry two sisters. But before this process of Mitzrayim, there was no implementation of any prohibitions because there was no physical world that could handle neither the good side, meaning the positive mitzvahs, nor or the negative side. So there's no problem of two sisters marrying. Two sisters marrying were not relevant to each other in a iser, in a relationship of iser, in a relationship of halachic problematic. There was no problem over here because there was no halachic definition yet to create any problems. 
Aye, they kept the Torah mitzvahs, but they didn't keep the Torah mitzvahs in a physical realm. So when they married two sisters, there was no physical connection between the two sisters to make a problem. That's the idea he explains. There's a lot to talk about on this itself, but again, that's not the main body of this mimer. Just like Mitzrayim was this, this refining pit, that will lead to the ability for there to be a matan Torah. So too, the, the goddess of Edom, who so likewise now, so how does this relate to us? So we had the Mitzrayim already. What does it mean for us? No, we're living now through the same experience. We're going through a, a new Kor HaBarzal. We need to learn now how to adapt to the world of Mashiach, to bring the revelations of Torah and Mitzvah, the way it's going to be, as we said, we started off saying tonight that the world is not yet perfect. When the world is perfect, then Torah and Mitzvah are perfect. That means whatever the Jews experienced for the past 4,000 years or 3,500 years from giving the Torah, is still not the perfection of Torah and Mitzvah. So the Korah Basel of Mitzrayim was only able to perfect us to deal with the Torah and Mitzvah the way it is now. But now we have to go through a new process, a new struggle, so to speak, a new, and we see the challenges today are very different than in Mitzrayim besides the food versus the cell phone. The very fact that today the world is deal, dealing with all these new ideas of falsehoods, about ideas of if, if a man is a woman or a woman is a man, or any of these other types of really seemingly insane ideas of what's truth and what's not truth, it's the refining of getting through to this process of finally being able to deal with the ultimate truth. So today we question, is a man a man or a man is a woman? Why? Because when Mashiach comes, there's going to be the switch between a man and a woman's roles. There is going to be a refinement of what it means a man to be a man and a woman to be a woman. It's not for no reason that that's the struggle today. All has to do with this Korah Barzal, this refining, this testing, this working, refining of ourselves and our relationship with the physical world, that then when we come to the world of Mashiach, we are now ready to actually embody this change, this idea, this revelation. I'm not saying that a person who is a man should doubt whether he's a man. That's not my point. There, there's a concept when Mashiach comes, it's Isha Teisavis Gever, the woman will take the main role versus the man. Now the man has the main role versus when Mashiach comes. But what's the point I'm trying to get? What is the Rebbe saying here? Is that now there's a new Korah Barzal, there's a new refining in Gaul, We've been gods for 2,000 years, so it must be some heavy-duty stuff going on, right? And that's going to be the ultimate revelation of Gili, of, of Atmos, of godliness in this world. To make that happen, for us to relate to it, for us to be able to deal with it, for us to see how the physical world will transform into this beauty, to this unbelievable element of God's essence, that needs the Korah Basel that's going on right now. Shairei ha-mitzvahs, because we know mitzvahs ain't a betelis li mashiach There's a machlekas in the Gemara, or in Rishonim perhaps, whether the, when in the second stage, in Yemoisa Mashiach, there's two stages. There's Mashiach's coming, and then there's Tchiyas HaMesim. So after Tchiyas HaMesim, some say there won't be any more mitzvahs. But in the first stage, in Yemoisa Mashiach stage, everybody agrees there is going to be mitzvahs. At that point, we said that that stage, the mitzvahs will be more refined in a more internalized way. The whole world will know God. So when you do a mitzvah now, how much do we know about God? How much do we connect? Not that much. When Mashiach comes, we'll fully connect. Now he says something very interesting. He says, now every person on their own private level, till now we're talking about on a cosmic general level, the Jews as a whole, the world as a whole, but what about the individual, the specific person, me, today, in my world, in my struggles, in my day-to-day -day life? He says, every Jew specifically, the reason why he has struggles and challenges, this sounds very harsh to deal with a little bit. We, want, we should never have you serve, we should never have those challenges. The Rebbe says we, we can live a life of pure bliss now. But 
The Alter Rebbe says that the reason why God gives us Yisurim now is to refine us, each one individually, on his level to be able to be refined enough to be able to reach the point of perfection of mitzvahs. To refine us and our ability that when we do a mitzvah, we, it's like sometimes, unfortunately, we don't realize God is in this world, and then something happens, and you realize, you know, you got to start believing in God. you got to connect. And when that happens, all of a sudden, your whole connection, your whole, all your things you do in your world are totally different. It's all imbued with the godliness. And that's what he says here. That's the power of the Yisurim, of the Rekor Arbarzal, that allows us to connect. I'm just going to try to do the next paragraph. As, 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 the truth is, this whole mimer is just so much. There's so much here. There's a lot here. It's very late. I don't know if I'm going to finish the whole thing. I don't think I'm going to finish it, but I do want to do this last paragraph as much as I could because it really brings everything back together. So what we're saying is, is that we've answered many questions. We've dealt with the question of why the Torah was given, why wasn't it given to Avram Avinu. We dealt with the difference between the Ratzi Vishuv of Avram versus the Ratzi Vishuv of the Torah Mitzvahs. We dealt with the relationship that we have through Ratzi Vishuv in Avram's level versus in our level. We asked why didn't Avram Avinu have the physical Mitzvahs because of the fact that he didn't go through the Korah Barzal and all that. But we're still left with the question of the original question, and that is, why did the Jews experience these the, this light show of, 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 of sounds and, and visions and, and koil hashoifer? A big question was the koil hashoifer. Why did God choose the instrument of the shoifer, right? And what the Alter Rebbe now is going to address is this issue, and he's going to explain, in order for us to achieve this mission of being able to do this, this flip-flop of Ratzai Vishuv, at the one hand getting excited, so to speak, of experiencing godliness and flowing of godliness, and the other hand being restricted in doing what we need to do. As we said before, you want to maybe, you know, sometimes in religion you want to just feel ultimate connection, and you don't want to deal with the physical world. You don't want to have to deal with the, the struggles that come with it. That doesn't work. You have this dual paradoxical forces that go on in Judaism, Ratzai versus Shuv. What enables a person, us, to be able to harness both energies together, to have the ultimate connection? Because again, Ratzai Vishuv, as we explained, like the swimmer, allows you to go propel yourself forward by going backwards, allows you to move forward, to connect deeper. How do we harness a double entity? You see certain people that are very spiritual. Again, the word spiritual is a mistake. That's not Jewish. But let's say very spiritual, very much connected to want to connect. Rahman boy, connected to the soul, they daven a lot. But when it comes to the physical mitzvahs, they're not doing a lot of that. They don't care about necessarily the precision of making sure to keep Shabbos as soon as the minute of Shabbos enters. Or, or light Shabbos candles the moment Shabbos, before Shabbos, the 18 minutes before. They don't, that, that, that doesn't bother them so much. And other people are the other way around. They're very careful about the specific details, but when it comes to maybe feeling closer, they don't. How do you harness, so to speak, these two energies? And what the Alter Rebbe says, the answer is kol shayfer. What's the kol shayfer again? We said the pure sound, the child sound. The sound that has no complexion, uh, complications, the sound that's pure, it's essence. When you start off with an essence, and the truth is what he's going to say here is very deep, and it really should, it could take three hours just to explain what he's saying over here, but the, just to bring out the points, what he's going to say here is the shoifer represents an idea of starting off with connection to an essence, and when you're connected to an essence, then automatically there's no contradiction between two different ways of avoida. Why is that? Because in the essence, both exists. There is no conf conflict in the essence. If we said, God makes peace 
in his higher realms. Fire and water only exist as a, as a contrast to each other, as a struggle with each other, because once they evolved into a physical world, or even in a spiritual emotional world, as existing as an independent force, they seem to be two fight, two, two struggles, two, two opposite things. But in their source, they're all one. It's all the same energy, it's all God's energy, it's all the same idea, it's all the same thing. So when you harness that source, the source of things, then you actually be able to deal with each one from its perspective and use it in its right place. And that's the source of the, that's the power of the Kol Shoefer. When, let's say, we struggle with our own inner emotions, let's say just on a pure psychological level, you struggle with your emotions. At moments you feel happy, at moments you feel sad, you're depressed, you're exhilarated. There's things that are fluctuating, there's turbulence in your life. When you tap into a deeper place, you could be able to handle the moment of struggle, to be able to know what it is, to be able to utilize it for its good. Likewise, when you're happy, you're able to utilize it for its good. When you're just caught up in the emotion and the turbulence of the emotion itself, you don't know how to handle it, they do seem like a roller coaster ride of, confliction, of conflicting different reactions. When you tap into your deeper essence, that allows it, because in the essence, they're all one. It's all stemming from the same place. It's stemming from the source. And from in the source, it's all one big, it's all the same energy. It's not two different energies. And therefore, you can then harness the difference and the different energies, although they seem paradoxical, and utilize them in a, a, in a harmonious, it's like, for example, a major and a minor in a, in, in a music. They sound different, opposites, but when you know how to harness them beautifully, they come beautifully together. Why? Because you have an underlying structure of music that accompanies it. You have something that you deep in, deep, catch deeper into it, and that's the shofar. Why the shofar? Because the shofar has a narrow tip. The narrow tip represents, again, like we said before about the singularity. In the narrow tip, you have the essence of God, or the essence of, in that sense of God. And from there, it's minameta karasika. I call out to ka, yutke. Yutke represents chachma and bina in its purest sense. And from there, it's, it expands itself into a greater, bigger, so the shofar then goes out into a wider sense. In the wider sense, it's the, it's the state of where this essence evolves into an idea of yutke, bemerchavka, yutke, yudhe, the way chachma and bina relate in a much more expanded self, the way it takes on a life of itself, the way they become independent, so to speak. And that's the levels we relate to. But when we tap in back into the source, into the tip of the shofar, into the narrowest point, into the essence, then we actually tap into, as we said before, to the source of pleasure, to the source of this, and then we allow the flow to be one one continuous flow. And that's what the Jews experienced at Madan Torah. They were here at the Shafer, meaning they realized and experienced the essence, and that goes through with us in the time of Golis now, when we have to work with this Ratzi Veshuv, or any time when we're doing Torah mitzvahs, it enables us to keep the balance, the equilibrium, so to speak, between the two forces of the fire and the water, of the Ratzi and the Shuv, to be able to harness, which here he explains as Yudke Vavke, to be able to bring it together. Let's try to read a little bit. Maybe we'll stop soon. It's, it's, it is, it is, it is um, a, a, an idea for itself, but obviously it's bringing everything together. Let's return now to our subject. The giving of the Torah The Torah was given again in fire and water. Down here in this world. Through that, you could have this traveling and coming back and forth. We asked the question, how could two opposites, water and fire, not extinguish each other? So we said, this is what the post says, God makes peace in his holy higher realms. What does peace do? Peace brings together two opposites. The famous example given in Hasidus is, let's say you have two opposing forces, right? Let's say you have the minister of war that wants to go to war, and then you have the treasurer that wants to have a good budget, right? It's, let's say, today. Uh, you have the, 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 the State Department maybe wants to wipe out Iran. And then you have the, 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 
the economic minister says, if you do that, you may lose your economy, right? So they're busy fighting it out. Then all of a sudden comes, they come before the king, the king decides what he wants, and they all of a sudden lose, they're just functioning for what the king wants at that point. In other words, they submit their individual personal objective or ego, and they realize that their whole function of why they're here in this world is purely to fulfill the king's wishes. Why are they the treasurer? Why are they the war minister? They're here to fulfill the king's wishes. So they don't have a say, a personal say. All they can do is, give information that they think is valuable to the king. But they're so bottled, they're so nullified in that sense that they don't fight anymore. They're not fighting, they're sitting around the table together discussing the different elements because at the end of the day, it's bringing together like the team to be able to focus what makes them be bottled when they're connected to their higher source, when they sense the source of why they're even here. And that's in our case, God, why we're here, why we're doing Torah mitzvahs. And that's the idea of Isa Shalom B'mrayim. If Shalom could connect two opposites, not that they become buddy buddies, but it allows them to function together because they're a bottle, they're nullified to the deeper source, which in this case is the primius, the essence, which is the concept of the essence. This is the concept of the sound of the shoifer. The shoifer we blow from the narrow mouth, from the narrow tip. And the sound goes forth and widens. And it ends in a much big wider place. And what does this represent in the terms of the Pesukim? From the narrow point, I call out, I connect. The word call, when you call someone, it means you connect with that person. You bring them close to you and you to them. We call out Yudke, we call out Ka, Anani, and I'm answered in an expansiveness of Yudke. So I initially start my connection with God in the, in, the, in the narrow point, in my essence. And from there, I allow it to experience a much more detailed, so to speak, experience of God. What is the mate? I mean, welcome to the narrow point. You don't, you don't understand God over there. You don't understand God at all. It's much higher, much more removed from any comprehensions. This is what we said before. The shoifer at this point is the source of pleasure because it's with God. It's dealing with essence. There's no pleasure in essence. In the essence, it's dry. Uh, last summer, I gave a whole sh class over here about the essence of who we are and all that, and I brought out this point. You know, when you're in a relationship, let's say, with husband and wife, and the ultimate point of the relationship, it's not an exciting relationship. It's pure dryness, because it's pure essence. If there's moments where you could get into tiny, where you could get stimulated, so we've mentioned before, the arouse and enjoyment and all that, there's fun that goes on, and it's very important in the relationship to have the world of fun, the world of gilui. But in the pure essence, it's very dry. When you're home with your parents, when you're in a family setting, you don't get excited being home with your parents or with your family. After five seconds of not seeing them for a while, you're back to square one, right? There's no more excitement because that's pure essence. When you're connected to essence, there's no, if you're meeting someone for the first time, you're only focusing on the enjoyment. You're not focusing on the essence because you're not connected to an essence. So there's always enjoyment. You went out with someone, ah, so much fun, it was so exciting. Why? You weren't connecting to the essence. You're connecting to the fun part of the person, to the tainuk, to the pleasure, to the giluim. Versus when you're connecting to a person on the ultimate level, it's really not a lot of fun. It's the source of fun, though. It's the source of time. It's the source of pleasure. In there, you actually have pleasure. And that's the color of the shoifer. The sound of the shoifer has the, the source of pleasure. Through that, you could experience the purity of pleasure, the real pleasure. That means through the essence, you could actually then harness energies and powers to be able to connect on a much deeper, more real level. And that's what he says here. Avul ba'atzmai, it itself, will call pashit. It's a simple sound. the source of pleasure. Ki imcha as we said before, with you is the source of life, which we said the source of life is a source of pleasure. Completely bottled to God's essence. From there I call forth Yudke, Yud Ilah, Bechinus Chachma, Vehe Ilah, 
Bino, What happens over here? So now that I have the essence, from the essence I go forth and I start developing my relationship with God by having a chachma. Chachma starts off by having the dot, the knowledge, the pure knowledge of God, but then it works into the world of Bina. Bina is this deeper analysis, understanding, widening, broadening my understanding of God. So I start off with a pure, pure simple, until now I understood nothing, it's pure essence, right? It's like a relationship between a husband and a wife or a father and a son. When the child is born, you don't know, there's nothing, there's just pure essence connection. But then as the child grows and they communicate, so you can start understanding and grasping different elements. That's chokhmah that moves into higher realms, bina. That's the beginning stages of our consciousness, so to speak, the beginning stages of our awareness of our relationship with God. But what we are aware of is, is minimal, is small. It's chokhmah, but then it expands into bina. But it's, this awareness and understanding is actually much less than the purity of the essence that we have ourselves. So that's the yudke, the first yudke. That you contemplate the Hainushik Fariyesh Bechinus Hasog, Mashing and Chokhmim Bechinus Barak, okay? The Hainushim Misham Ascholos Hesavus Chokhmim Veeden. From that source of the Meitzar, once you have essence, then it develops Chokhmim, which we said is the beginning stages of awareness of God. But there it also begins Eden. Eden is pleasure. Gan Eden is the, is the, is the, is the, Gan is, um, is the garden of pleasure. The garden of pleasure initiates from the pleasure. What's the pleasure? The pleasure is Torah. So what happens is you start understanding God. You therefore stimulate pleasure. Chachma is the root, is the seat of pleasure, but you don't really have pleasure in Chachma. Let's say, for example, a person has an aha moment. They come up with a creative idea. Wow, they're, they can't really enjoy it until they understand what the aha was, right? That's the bina. In the bina, you could flesh out the tainuk. So what happens over here, chachma is the point where you understand God somewhat. You have an aden, you have a guard, you have a pleasure, but you don't understand it. Bina then makes you start understanding what's going on. And when you understand it, then you're like, wow, this is amazing. This is so enjoyable. This is exciting. And that's the Gan Eden that comes afterwards. Bina's the Gan Eden. It's the, it's the, it's the widening of and a pleasurable. It's like you go, for example, to, a, to a, you read a small uh, uh, tidbit on something, and it gets you thinking, but you don't fully grasp what's going on. And then you think about it more and more, and you like, realize, wow, this thing is so huge. It's so amazing. You get such enjoyment out of this thing. And that's sort of the idea over here. That the chokhmah and bina that generate through the beginning, the narrow point of the shofar, the yutke, is this point of chokhmah and bina, the beginning stages of the enjoyment and the pleasure of godliness. And through that, you reach the expansive state of yutke. Just like there's a yudhe above, kachish bechinas yutke tatoid, yud bechinas bitl. So the inverse of this is when it translates into widening yutke, which is the more, I guess you could say, the more. Um, remove yutke, not in the pure essence anymore, but now the way essence, now the way it materializes, so to speak, into a more general experience of yutke, which is the yud, which represents bittel, where you now feel a certain bittel to God. Because you're aware of God, you understand him, you also feel very bottle, you feel like insignificant to him. You feel, what am I to God? How do I relate to God? So that's the yud that comes out of it. It's b'chines bittel, ma'im tachpeinim, chachmatata, yud b'roish, yud b'soif, v'hei hu b'chines eish v'tzimoyin shibleh. But then the hei comes in, you understand God, so what do you want? You want to connect more. So the bittel says, retreat, you know, know your place. But then the hey, which is the understanding, says, no, 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 no. I want to run. I want to be close to God as much as I could. That's the hey that comes out. And then he says, so this is the idea of the blowing of the shofar. This is what happened when the Jews experienced Vanatari. They got this power to harness the, the one hand, the bittel, the nullification, to say, know your place, know your job, serve God the way you're supposed to. Don't try to run and catch 
higher levels, but at the same time also the wanting to catch higher levels. And then, when do we experience this on a daily basis? That's when we daven Shmei Nesrei. When we daven Shema, we say the brachas. We said before, before we say Shema, we say about the angel's experience. Why do we talk about the angel's experience? Because that's supposed to mimic our experience. We read about the way the angels experience their connection to God. And through that, we realize that this is where our connection should be. So what happens? The angels start off. This is very interesting. We'll finish with this, but this is extremely fascinating. He says, that's what it says in Yecheskel. In the beginning chapters, the first chapter of Yecheskel, it says, So Yecheskel is describing his image of what's going on. So he says, under the rakia, under this, this canopy or this whatever word you want to call it, this ferment, whatever word you want to use to describe it, I don't know myself what it is because I, I never experienced it, but Yecheskel did. Underneath that, we'll see in a moment what the spiritual level is, their, their wings were Yesharis. It says, Kanfeim Yesharis, that their wings were spread out. Shekanfeim, their wings, Nikrafifafon. Their wings are representative of the things that they fly, Berotzi. As we said before about swimming, another analogy to Rotzi Vishuv is a, 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 a bird flying. What does a bird need to do in order to fly? He has to flap his wings up and then down, right? Like an airplane does with the pressure to, to, to deal with the, um, the two forces, right? The, 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 two, the pressure forces that come, that pushes up and pushes down, that's how the bird allows himself to fly. So the angels, so to speak, have their wings flapping, meaning obviously connecting to God through Rotsi Vishul. So that's what happens when they're under the canopy. With a tremendous flame, this is under the canopy. What does the canopy represent? It represents this level of this ice, which represents a limitation of their comprehension of God. It's like tzimtzum, it's like a curtain that blocks out light, doesn't allow them to fully experience God. So on that level, they think they can feel they're closing, they're getting closer and closer and closer, because whatever they could experience is something that they think is relatable to them, right? So that's under the canopy. But then, yeah, that's Bechinus Krach or Bechinus Bittel, that once they reach the Krach, once they reach this canopy, that's the blockage point. But then Yechezka goes off. But there's a sound that comes from above this canopy. Asher al which is above the angels. Who call Ashoifar. That's the higher source. That's the source of not where you feel kenos to God, where you could see God, understand God. It's the purity of the essence of God. Very high. That's when they standing in prayer. Then their wings are down. They're not flapping their wings. Their wings are settled down. That's why when we daven Shemar Nesrei, we stand as one, singular. We don't move our hands. We don't move our feet. We're one focus. Because in that state, we represent this point of having nothing, of having a Ratzi Veshub experience. It's the pure, great revelation of God. At that stage, you don't have a Ratzi Veshub. Again, the wings flapping represents Ratzi Veshub. So you feel like this exhilarating emotion of trying to get close, but yet retreating and closer and retreating. But when you're above the canopy, when you're in the essence itself, you're just, you're just one. You're just united with the source. You're just in the source. And therefore, you can't, you're no flapping. There's no, there's no difference between Ratzi Veshub on that level. Um, we're united in this ultimate unity. There's no calling of Ratzi or Shuv. And from there, above the canopy, this highest place, that's where we get the greatest experience of God. That we could feel and feel this closeness. 
That creates the ultimate equilibrium. When we have the when we experience the pure essence of God, when we really get in tune with that, that allows that when we do experience our Ratsi Vishuv moments, where our moments of getting excited and wanting to run out, so to speak, and just experience God versus then retreating and knowing our place and what our job is. Our job is to sit and learn Torah and to get excited, but our job is also to do mitzvahs and get into the world and make sure we change the world. That's our job. That's what we got to do. That's what we make the Tachtainim. What enables us to do these two opposite things? It's because we're connected to the essence of God. Every day during davening, when we experience it, it reawakens within us this knowledge, this, this feeling, which the Jews generally experienced on, on, by the shofar blowing on, on, on my Sinai. So bottom line is, before, we're not going to finish the moment tonight, the job, bottom line is what are we talking about? What's the essence? What are we getting to the essence over here? Our job in this world right now, we're holding at the moment, right before Mashiach, which is the point of where the core harbarzal, this energy of transforming is very, very deep. That's why there's a lot of chaos going on. My shver, my father-in-law talks about the chaos a lot. We're living in a very tumultuous time. The, the tumult that's going on in this world is an indication of the Kor HaBarzal. And we, therefore, are surging through our Ratzi Vishuv process. But we're also deeply connected more to our essence. We're much more connected to the essence, to the Aitzim We're actually experiencing more the Koyal HaShoifer, just like the simple sound. It's not exciting. Maybe in previous generations it was more exciting. God, they understood God more. They related to God more. We're more tachas. We're a, we're we're lamaylam already. We're at the point of the essence of God. We're living in that place, so it's not so exciting as we said before. It's more dry, but we're connected deeper. And therefore, our rotzi v'shuv, we could really harness. We could learn Torah. We could be connected in our davening. But then we go out and fill, change the world. We make sure that we're making that our consciousness of God is being spread to the world around us. We meet a Jew. We try to get that Jew to do what they need to do because we now experience what it means to be connected to an essence. We want them to be experience that essence as well. You find another person who's not Jewish, you want them to also experience the knowledge of God. That's how we bring about this ultimate year of Tachtainim. That's how we create this ultimate level of drawing this essence that we're now really living in. That's why we have this energy that was never before in history. Our energy now is much greater because we're above the Rakia. We're actually living in that moment now. But we got to realize that the job was not, is still not done, meaning the sense is that, as the Rebbe says, our job is to make the world ready for Mashiach, which is simply put, you just go around, you're telling people, you know, this world is at a point that it's, it's happening, whether you like it or not. It's scary, maybe, but that's, that's the Kuala Shefer. It makes us afraid. It gets us a little nervous. It makes us uncomfortable. We're not sure what's going to happen. But when we do what we got to do, we're guaranteed that this is all going to turn out the way it's supposed to be. We'll be blessed with only good things and Mashiach now.